going on, guys? Dustin with the LFG 1904 Show. Reconstruction Rescue is your best choice for flood restoration services in San Diego County. With years of experience in the industry, their dedicated team of project managers will work hand-in-hand with you from start to finish, specializing in home insurance water damage claims. They take on the headache of dealing with your insurance company so you don't have to. Call this number today for a free estimate. 760-891-9919. Once again, that number is 760-891-9919. Reconstruction Rescue. Y'all know the deal. Uh, yeah, like, especially in Nashville, it's not hard. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ra- hey, Rafa was oh, gone. <laughs> this guy I, was gone. I loved it. I loved it. California sober. Yeah. I dig it. Yeah, Billy Strings is a very big weed aficionado. <laughs> he smokes yeah, a yeah. lot of weed. Right. <laughs> There you go. You guys heard that. We were playing some bluegrass before the show. Welcome back, guys. I'm Dustin. Welcome back to the LFG 1904 show. It's your boy, Rafa. That's right. Boom. Today's guest, guys, fantastic. You guys are in for a treat, which is really fucking... uh, Let me turn this off. Okay, let me, get, let me just figure out what I'm doing here. Okay, cool. All right, guys, today's guest is our friend Randy. Um, 41 years clean. 41 years clean. My back. I know. <laughs> you kids. I know. Dang. And uh, I'm going to tell you guys right now, wow, some of the things that he's been through in his life. I've heard him share his story twice, so I'm looking forward to uh, hearing it again in person. Uh, of course, we'll ask some recovery questions, but man, 41 years clean. Before you were a good idea. I know, exactly. <laughs> well, almost. I'm 40. Oh. I'm, for, I'm about to be 43. Okay. All yeah, right. I was born in 81. Yeah, All right. D- Dustin yeah. was like 15 when you decided to get clean. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I was late bloomer, actually. I was 34. Like when I took it serious. Uh, uh, 28. Yeah. 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 I was, oh, you got 20. clean at 28? Yeah. I got clean at 28. Yeah, that's wow. a com- that's amazingly, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of people. If you look at the people who died from mm-hmm. that life, they're always like 27. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. all 27. Like wow. 27 seems to be a nexus point where either it blows up or something changes. Yeah. You know? It's crazy. Really? Tupac and Biggie, yeah. man. <laughs> that's true, too. Took him out. There you go. <laughs> I was still playing that bluegrass. I think that was more ballistic, though. I got yeah. I know that 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 is true. Yeah. <sighs> so, I mean, here's the deal, man. Randy, uh, he's a, he listens to our podcast, which I was super surprised. I'm like, God damn, man! LFG. I, yeah, yes. <laughs> God damn right. You know the deal. We're gonna take we're gonna take Randy on a motorcycle ride after this. So <laughs> be, look, be looking for that, guys. Oh yeah. Um, so. Let's let me just get into it before I start asking questions, Randy. So, well, I'll, I just want to ask, where are you from, and what do you do? Yeah, I'm, I grew up in a very affluent town, Scarsdale, New York. No street life at all, and I right now I'm a professor at UC San Diego. So, and I'm very open about my recovery. I can tell you that story. It's kind of fun how I made that transition. Don't try this at home, newcomers. Yes, <laughs> but it was uh, that was a process. But I I'm a professor of biology at UC San Diego, and I. Run a research lab. I have people getting PhDs with me, and I teach large 
academic classes to mostly pre-meds. Tomorrow's doctors. <laughs> wow. So, and I nice. unbelieved, and all of it is because of recovery. Like, whenever I say anything about my success, it's not me bragging, it's me bragging about recovery, like mm -hmm. the power of recovery. That's the reason I feel a responsibility to describe the good things in my life because it's 100% due to the fact that 41 years ago, the universe provided a unlikely path to get clean. <laughs> you know? right. like, and I mean, I think that every, every recovery story is a miracle. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of variations of that miracle, but they have a core similarity that allows us to help a lot of different people. Mm. So, yeah, I grew up in Scarsdale, New York. I mean, I think I'm an example. I mean, you hear a lot of stories of trauma and horrible family life that definitely contribute if not to addiction, to getting out of addiction. You know, I, I don't, I think they're both. I think trauma and horrible family setting can contribute, but it definitely makes it harder to get clean, you know, mm -hmm. because I think it has to do with sense of self-value, trusting other people to take care of you. And those, those, those bonds erode so deeply that re-earning, regaining trust in people, which we need in recovery, is really a challenge. So maybe I had it, a little easier but the bottom line is that i am proof at least anecdotal proof if not scientific proof that you can take someone with no street life no bad family dynamics no trauma like that at least and you give them drugs if they're an addict they're going to get really really sick like i'm like the glass case experiment take an addict hermetically sealed from the street, add drugs, what happens? <laughs> incredibly, it was like very, I'm incredibly lucky to be here. It's right? about like, where you're from is about like two, three hours from the city, right? Yeah, an hour. And it was, yeah. it's a very affluent suburb of New York City. Right. And uh, my, I mean, it's funny because I grew up in this town. It's sort of like that old story of two fish are swimming and one fish goes, how's the water? And the other fish goes, what's water? Like I didn't mm -hmm. realize how, special the circumstances i was living in were mm -hmm. until i got away from it like i know drive through they go damn i couldn't afford the garage on that house right. you know like right, was, right like i had there i remember there was this young lady janet i used to visit and i would throw rocks to her her window on the east wing of her house like wow. that's the kind of crazy mm -hmm. affluence that scarsdale new york has but right. strangely my exposure to drugs was very early like mm -hmm. And I think part of that's when you're in a safe environment, you you your boundaries can be loose because you can do shit safely, right? Like I had no, so I remember my first experience with then this a lot of people have this. I was in eighth grade and I was hanging out with some friends and we got drunk, and I think they used to drink. You know, they're from this huge Catholic family and the kids all ran riot, you know, because there were just too many of them to, to monitor. Right. right. And uh, you know, they were good friends. They lived down the road. And we got drunk in like eighth grade. And I remember for me, it felt like a historical event. Like it felt super special. And I don't think normal people, you know, it woke up something in me like, whoa, that was great. And then, you know, I sort of floated around the idea that you could alter your state of consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. I, I always thought that. I also remember my folks smoking and I was thinking like, they're consuming something with great avidity that doesn't nourish them. What is that about? Like, it was intriguing, you know? Right. And uh, then the next time I, I, I remember I went to this cool sleepaway camp, sort of where we worked and did cool things. And, uh, and uh, I remember two kids stole, like, morphine from the infirmary, and they were injecting it. And I was like, what? Like, I just, but I remember being intrigued, like, 
it was not off-putting so much as, wow, that's interesting. And then in 10th grade, my friends were all like smoking pot and shit, like everybody, like doing weed. And back then, the weed was nothing. Like, now it's like nuclear-grade weed. Yeah, I don't yeah. even it's think like that's whole, weed anymore, man. Yeah, it's not weed. It's ah, like damn. THC with some leaves yeah. added, you know, to make it look organic. It's a uh, it's goddamn science it, experiment. I know, that's it, what is. it is. It is, it is. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember the, the thing that addresses now in deep retrospect is the first day that I smoked pot, I also snorted heroin. And wow. it was like, you know, the fact that's... If you talk about a lack of boundaries, I just... Anything was okay, and then for the next number of years, it was all about availability fooling me into thinking I had control. Mm-hmm. Like it was all about availability, right? Is is if you get drugs now and then, you know, you think, oh, this is cool. And it just gradually progressed in my own way until I found ways and means to get more and more. And the way that looked was, you know, I just used anything I could in high school, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was on i probably took acid several hundred times you know and i'm just lucky that i have enough brain left to be a damn professor because who know you know and i didn't know what i was doing and and um so around this time like the era that you were using right yeah like what what was it it was like 70 70 71 72 so there was like barrels 70, sunshine and all this like, like acid was new york waters and all woodstock that all that good yeah stuff. that, that happened this summer i was starting to use i didn't go there but i heard about it say oh there's this big music festival don't take the brown ass you know that that was real that shit was real and so then i went off to college and it was still a matter of and there you know drinking every i mean one of the things i say to young addicts and you know i do not like i totally get why young addicts hate when they go well you haven't torn yourself up you're good you know or that bullshit about you know, you've spilled more dope than, you know, I've mm. taken more dope than you spilled. I remember my friend Laser, you may have her on here. Yeah, yeah. She said, well, if you had spilled less, you might have gotten here quicker. Yeah. <laughs> but that's like brilliant. Like yeah. that's one of her lines. And mm. But the fact is that what I think about the young person's challenge is that all young people act like addicts and a small subset are. So there's a lot of noise to the signal. Like you can... Act, you know, a lot of kids just use a lot of dope because they want to turn their knobs. Like, I think a lot of the young people overdosing on fentanyl now aren't even addicts yet. They're just trying that Experimenting. shit out. And, yeah. and it kills them because, you know, of the simple, horrible potency of that drug and the inability of street people to mix it or, you know, the purveyors of that shit to mix it safely. Not that that's like, I don't think yeah. mix it safely people and then go sell it. It's like a huge problem, but, huge problem, but it, it is a problem that's incredibly tragic. Cause it doesn't even, you know, it, it just affects everyone who gets near it. Cause it's so potent and so dangerous, but fentanyl story a little later. So in college, I just got more and more wrapped up in trying to, but it was always part of my path. Like there was no disagreement between me and, my budding addict. I didn't even know there was a budding addict. Like I hung out with these really nerdy people. We were all science and math majors, you know, that's what we did. And I love that. That was awesome. And I remember we did shit. Like we figured out how to get into the infirmary at our college. We discovered, I mean, this is a little fact. I don't know, LFG, you know, Mm. a lot of edge, Mm. but if you take a, a, a key and cut all the rows down to the lowest one, that's a master often. And wow. so, yeah, I didn't know that. And so we made master keys to the university and, you know, 
went in. He ran a muck. We ran a muck, <laughs> yeah. but we discovered that the the uh, the infirmary was not accessible. So we w- used our master to get into the key shop and found the infirmary key, which was a little different. And then went in there and used police scanners and you know all that shit and climbed trees and st- stole these huge bottles of whatever. And so there was this constant, you know, accelerated using that was never enough to get me into big. Tr- I remember the last summer i was there i met a guy who was like you know selling all kinds of dope out of a suitcase and you know i i would just buy whatever i could and get high and i remember like times where i was getting other people high and you know that shit could have gone so wrong so easily like you give someone who's naive to drugs something and they get really sick or really woozy and you know that's like overdose in jail it's okay the next day. Like I, there was absolutely yeah. no sense of danger. It's like there's this wonderful author, Philip K. Dick. He's written a number of great science fiction books that have been converted into like Schwarzenegger movies and stuff. And he wrote a book called uh, Through a Scanner Darkly. And it's about this sort of post-utopian or you know, anti-utopian world where the there's all of this drug interdiction, and then you find out that the government is making the drugs and getting people high. Wow. It's an incredible <laughs> story. And Philip K. Dick wrote this book because he took meth for years when he wrote, and he, he said he described it as like children playing in a highway. You know, he had all these friends who he lost to drugs, and it was sort of like that really rang a note with me when I read it because it was like, you know, the way we were, and now it's even worse with the, you know, the increased potency and increased danger. But even then it was like, we didn't know what we were doing. And right. and so I'll tell you something about my family life is I had really kind, good parents, but they had no idea what to do. Cause my first brother was like Buddha. He was, I love him to this day. He's like very different from me. I joke that he was a trans He grew up in New York <laughs> Moved to Texas and never left. He was like a Texan born in a New Yorker's body. And he ended wow. up there. And so he, uh, you know, but my folks just had no idea what to do with child number two, the spare. You know, I was like completely crazy, completely impulsive, completely, you know, into using all sorts of stuff. I remember once I woke my parents up at two and I think of this as a parent. Like, you're, are mm. you a parent, Rafa? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you guys get this. I woke my parents up at two in the morning with my buddy Frank and said, I'm going to hitchhike to New Hampshire. And they go, okay. And I left the house at like 2 a.m. We went out to the highway and just put our thumbs out and hitched. Like who would ever. And you know, the the thing about that is that I think my folks were, they weren't abusive. They weren't crazy. They just did, had no idea how to deal with a run amok kid. Did they know that you're using I, they must have, but I don't know. They never I, asked or nothing. They though, never huh? asked. And, you know, it was just different times. They, yeah. were, they were like World War. They met after World War II in uniform. They were right. America's greatest generation. But they, you know, I don't think they really had a sense of that. Right. And, um, you know, because I was the only. Br- Some families are full of kids going crazy that way. I was like, you know, there's that wonderful phrase in the fellowship that I was the black sheep of the family. When I got to NA, I found the whole flock. You know, that yeah. was definitely the case in my right. in my world and so you know and i think though that that kind of parenting i understand why because they had no tools to figure they had no tools to think about it but it also creates in your own mind a sense of your own lack of value like you know <laughs> mm. like a lack of you know like well 
you know, sure, go hitchhike. <laughs> to, yeah, to, you sure, know, go it, ahead, go ahead, and, it, go ahead and see what happens. Yeah. I bet. I mean, that's crazy. How many times did you do that? I did that a bunch of times. You know, like, <laughs> so it was nuts. And I guess different you know, time because that you ain't gonna do that shit now. Yeah, yeah, you ain't not. coming back. No, yeah. or you may, but Fox yeah. News won't report it unless you don't come back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, here's the story. <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's, I, I get. I mean, I don't think it's a good. If I had kids, I would. Like, no, you're not. Like, right? Yeah. You know, times are different, and they yeah. they were very generous in a lot of ways, and they rose to the occasion of my. Addiction. So what ended up happening was, you know, I, this just went on of finding ways. And in the meantime, I became a, you know, a, a, I was a very successful undergraduate student. I went to graduate school first in a field called physical chemistry, which is sort of the laws of chemistry. And I didn't like that so much. So I dropped out of there. I started playing lots of music. I was very involved in playing music. And so I did that for about a year or two, you know, and uh, drove back across the country. And it's after college, I was sort of rummaging around after this graduate school experience I didn't like in Berkeley. I went back home. I worked some menial jobs, always like finding dope, you know, and as whatever I could get. And I was very unpicky about it. I love meth. I loved opiates, whatever I could get. I wasn't injecting yet, you know. Yes. <laughs> and like turn yet. Yes. Very, okay. So yeah. then I... Well, hold on real quick. Just just the simple fact that you're using and you have a degree and you're still maintaining school is wild to me. Yeah, well, yeah. it's because it, I think that the there's this is mentioned in our literature. The rate of acceleration Correct, is yeah. very different. For, and it was all about availability. Like if I had landed in Southern California where meth was abundant mm. or if I had ended up in an environment where lots of people were going to the trap house, that would have been it. Sure. I mm -hmm. would not be here. Right. You know? Right. It, it just, I'm really sure that the universe provided me a, a drug desert to navigate through until, you know, until it didn't. Right. So what ended up happening, and we all find ways and means to get more, and it's very much based upon our circumstances, our abilities, you know, and then the things that are thrown our way. So what happened to me was I found this subject called pharmacology. And pharmacology is the study of drug action, you know, how they work on a molecular level, on a tissue level all drugs. Hmm. And I thought, that's an interesting field. And again, it was like the science Randy, intellectual Randy, recovery someday Randy, and addict Randy agreeing with each other. Like the addict Randy said, that sounds interesting. Yeah. You know, I like that drug part. And the yeah. rest of me goes, I like that science part. I said, let's go. So LFG. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so I applied to a, a fancy pharmacology department. And this is a field like you, they're always associated with medical school. So it was part of a University of Michigan Medical School. I, I've made all these amends, so I can say this now. And, sure. Uh, and um, I ended up there. And then things really took off because suddenly I was in an environment where I was, you know, this very valued graduate student. I joined a laboratory to work on my PhD. I was doing science. Like, you basically do a bunch of experiments and try to discover something, and it's pretty open-ended. But in the meantime, I, I you know, in I did stints in other labs. They're called rotations where you go to different labs to see what you like and then you join one to do your PhD. And right. needless to say, I gravitated to what are called the psychopharmacology labs. And those labs are like the ones that study the drugs that we all like. It is not a coincidence that pigeons, monkeys, mice, rats will all take with great gusto the same things that we do because Darwin was right. Mm. <laughs> you know, really? Like we're mm. all pretty similar. Right. And so I gravitated to those labs, and, and then it was that thing that every addict has where I started making bargains with myself 
that kept falling. Like, I'll, you know, I discovered morphine. Like, wow. And I discovered that the only way to take morphine was to skin pop it. So I thought, well, that, you know, at first I was drinking a little bit of it. And I said, that's really not very efficient because I was stealing it. When you steal it, it gets to be, you know, you want, you want as much bang for your buck because it's risky. So I was stealing this morphine and, you know, putting it in these cool, you know, like sealed injection bottles and taking it home and stuff. And um, before I knew it, I was, first I was like just skin popping on the weekends, you know, and you get that delightful and nausea and you get high. And I was reading books about the drug like William S. Burroughs and Andrew Weil, all these people talking about, you know, the power of drugs and all this stuff. And just like we read recovery literature now to improve our spiritual life, I read a lot to improve my using life, you know, mm -hmm. like to validate it, to mull over it, all this bullshit. You know, I had like a cool girlfriend. I had, you know, I was doing the science. So for a little while, the addict in me and the rest of me agreed with each other. But what happens is the addict starts controlling the whole show. Mm. And before long, you know, it got, it started getting like the the bargains went from like I'll only use on the weekends, you know, I'll only use, you know, on the in the evenings, I'll only use in the mornings before work in the evenings, I'll only use, you know, when I don't have something important to do. And basically I was using all yeah, the time. A skin pop on Saturday yeah, nights, baby. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> then what happened was as as my need got higher, availability, you know, security started tightening a little bit. Because this is a department where all these people are working on these powerful drugs. And they have a close relationship with the DEA. Like, they don't let you work with those substances without documenting them. And sure. So my stealing this shit was risking a lot of people's careers, which is another theme that's super common, right? And so I, I started, like, I mean, some of the things I was able to do were just nuts. Like, like convincing people to let me have access to these laboratory stashes you know, I joke that if I had the same creativity I could apply to my science now, I would be have a Nobel <laughs> Prize because I was just so resourceful and so young and naive and energized to do this. It was like the only thing. And, you know, before I knew it, I was starting to, like, get dope sick. And then I realized that mainlining would be the best solution to the scarcity of the drugs I had because it's, you know, I mean, that's not true, but it seems true. And uh, for a number of reasons, I mean, I had these hairy experiences where security was coming into the bathroom and I'd be literally standing on the toilet like a comedy show while they're looking under the stalls because I've been injecting some, you know, huge volume of low abundance dope into my arm. You know, like I discovered that they have these systems where an animal is taught to, to take some kind of drug, you know, to study yeah. Their response and long-term effect. So you could get a bottle this big with hardly, you know, a very low concentration of something you like. So you need to inject, oh, let's say half a liter of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, okay, like, good. Good, so, good. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, just hook it up, baby. Let's hook go. Hook it up. But I'd yeah. be like in a men's room in our department <laughs> and shit. And like, you know. Security was looking for you? Oh, my God. They, I heard them <laughs> come into the garbage and find like these bloody you know, butterflies that I had created. Like, this is, he was in here. And like, they run out like it was keystone wow. cops fucked up and then what ended up happening was that um it, you know things just got worse and worse and worse my poor girlfriend who, who i lived with at the time saw what was going on like she knew and she also used casually she was not an addict but you know again like the people around me and it just got i was before long i weighed like 108 pounds like i i 
I mean, here's the thing is some things don't change. Or like people might go, well, this isn't relevant. This is back in the old. I joke that, you know, this is an old person story. Like we had to make our own needles out of blown glass. We had to grow our own opium. But I used to seek out the same molecules that are now killing people. I loved fentanyl. And I sought out carfentanyl and sulfentanyl. These are the isomers that are now coming in on the black market that are 100 and 1,000 times more potent than fentanyl. Because for me, it was like you got more bang for your risk, right? Mm. And so, you know, things, I mean, it's incredibly tragic, but I also get why the market does this because it's, you know, it's the viciousness of the profit motive and that kind of thing. And so uh, what ended up happening is, I mean, this just got so bad that all I was doing, I was lying to my PhD advisor who this time knew something was serious. I mean, I weighed 108 pounds. I was even grayer complected than I am now. <laughs> and mm. I, you know, I looked like shit. I also would frequently be going into withdrawal and people, this are, this is a department full of people, you know, in a medical circumstance, you know, who could see someone going through withdrawal. Like I had a guy come up to me in a men's room once when I was just sitting there shivering. Are you okay? You know, I think that, you know, I, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, and so it was, it, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, and I really felt at the time like that there was no, way out like i felt like i was in a tunnel that was getting more and more constricted so there was tons of fear i mean and also as availability got worse i like i tried to make my own drugs that so you said right. fruit, and i fortunately failed at that grimly what had were you trying to make meth you know wow and, and had i done it but was it, but was it your own <laughs> meth though like you were just trying to figure out your uh, no i knew i knew one way to make it it's called the benzaldehyde nitroethane method where you condense those don't try this at home kids yeah you condense them and then you have to reduce this don't worry half the guys don't even know what you just said yeah, 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 right? <laughs> It's it's another way to do it, and I made a bunch of the precursor, and I could never reduce it, fortunately, to the form that we needed. And that was not we, me, because I was completely right. alone in this world. But it, it's unbelievably lucky that. But I almost burnt my apartment down. I singed all my hair off. I'll tell you the worst story. This is like a. There were like, uh, I'm amazingly lucky that my bottom was so bad because I don't need to. Even 40 years later, I can reel that tape back. Go. I never. <laughs> I am capable of self-destruction and self-trauma that is astronomical. Like, mm. I look back and go, and I think about people who would have a child, a son or a daughter who's that age, and watching that, it must be. I'm glad I was off in the Midwest so that that could mostly happen without me horrifying someone, but, you know, that's yeah. a whole separate thing. So I'll tell you, though, I tried to make this amphetamine. It failed. I talked to a guy later who had done that method, and he said his problem was at the end of the store. I thought that's a whole angle I never thought of. Like, <laughs> fuck, you know, even worse. So, you know, it's, um, I tried that, I failed. And one of the ways I failed was at the end of an experiment one night, there was just this little bit of crappy, toxic residue at the bottom of a reaction vessel. And what do I do? I took that crappy residue, dissolved it, and mainlined it. Like, that God knows what was in there and i remember when i was doing it i was going this could kill me this has aluminum and other shit in it like all sorts of crap and i just it was like another person was saying you just let me do this you know like there's an element of trauma in even the most healthy upbringing that comes from what we do to ourselves when we use i mean no one is exempt from that mm. you know that sort of deep I jokingly call it self-care run riot. Like it's the opposite of self-care. It's 
you know, it's just complete destruction. It's like, you know, like you're the wheel man for someone who does increasingly bad crimes and you just have to keep driving. It's mm -hmm. crazy. And so that did not kill me amazingly, but it also horrified me. I was like, and I tried to stop a whole bunch of times. Like I, you know, did I, here's the thing. I once had a bunch of morphine and I got in big trouble because I was, taking some variants of opiates and there's one called a kappa agonist that binds to an opiate receptor no one's ever heard of and it creates a very dysphoric hallucinogenic state and i was like trying all these bottles like like sampling them just to see what they were and suddenly like the room turned into rubber and i couldn't like figure out where <laughs> i was i mean it was and a friend of mine who was sort of using casually with me in this environment called my girlfriend and said randy took something really and she came and got me and she was rightfully pissed so i took all of the dope i had i thought i was going to be in big trouble too because several times like security would come in with a box full of needles that i had flushed down the toilet going these were recovered from plumbing i'm like oh gosh i wonder what those are and like be the bathroom on my floor and i'm the one who looks like 108 pounds and you know gray complexion like an alien dropped me off and so you know and i just kept lying kept lying kept looking worse and worse and so i probably everyone knew something seriously i had needle marks all along my hands because i was using these veins i had run out of other vein edge sure and i did all of those and so i looked and people would like these secretaries in the small department it's like what happened I go, oh a cat and you know they'd be this even like, right. even like, it's completely nuts. It was, yeah, yeah. and so what ended up happening, um, but I, so I took all this morphine and stuff. I was so scared of one of these legal-ish visits that I threw it into a swamp, like probably 50, 100 yards into the swamp. And I'll be damned, I stayed clean. I mean, probably drank beer and other shit. I constantly was drinking too. Mm. Like drinking was just a sort of carrier way for all the other stuff. So now we know what happened to Lindo Lake. Yeah, no, because <laughs> a month later, yeah, if only a month later, I drove back to that swamp and waded in my waist up to it and found the shit, brought it back and shot up with the trunk open on a country road in broad daylight. Oh, like that's I was, so fucking great. It was great. crazy. It was crazy. You, you know? walked out to the swamp. I walked through the swamp. I was that's like, right, Randy. You're such a dope I, was a I know. I mean, I, <laughs> that's right. Because people go, oh, well, he took pills. And yeah, sure. He, he got a flat tire, and then he went to the rooms. No, yeah, it no, was no. nothing like that. No, no, no. And, mm. so, and then what ended up happening is things, so as security got tighter, I kept finding more and more weird drugs to take like these highly dilute solutions and the keystone cop you know butterfly valve event and all that shit and then i started i found there was no google back then there was no internet yet so i would use these big books i found this molecule this compound and like i would forage for these things sometimes you'd forage great shit i found a big bag of pure it was called optically pure methamphetamine i used that for a while but i also found this bag of stuff that had a molecular structure kind of looked like amphetamine, but it had an extra nitrogen on it. Now, that doesn't mean much to people, but I looked at it, I said, oh, well, this might work, and I injected that shit. It gave me a pounding headache, a slight high. I'm like, that'll work, and it eventually robbed me of my color vision. Like, my wow. color vision went away for about six months, and yet I kept taking that shit. Like, there was no... The only thing that was important was even that slight high with a pounding headache, and I, I, I have read about that shit since. It was it, 
was a failed antidepressant. Like it didn't work, and you know it's just one of these many many molecules Shit. that are around. It shelved it. It shelved it. There's, I mean, this is one of the new problems with the opiate crisis is that there are for every fentanyl there are hundreds of other molecules that have been developed, studied, tested, and then put on the shelf, and any synthetic chemist can make them. So now yeah. there's a new molecule coming through, you know, through the world that's a completely unknown opiate from the scientific literature that is 10 times more potent than fentanyl. Like, this is happening, and it's... Really? Well, what's happening... And there's little Randys everywhere just... Yeah, right. They're good chemists, and I'm not, <laughs> right? So, you know, I was lucky that I was a... I was not the anti-Walter. I was Walter Black. Like, I, did, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not do it, and that was... I, I can't even imagine, it. like, a, something more powerful than a fentanyl. Uh, there, Well, there are fentanyl variants that are a thousand times more potent. Really? Like, meaning a thousand times less, but... Yeah, yeah. Whole other conversation, good conversation, sure. but... So... What ended up happening is I was taking this shit that was robbing me of color vision and just foraging for whatever I could. And you know, it was getting increasingly more difficult because people were realizing drugs were walking out. I even had to talk with several of these people who ran big labs going, we think it's you. And I'm like, well, how could I help? You know, like yeah. it's a variant of helping people look for stuff. Yourself. How can I help you with this perpetrator who's walking out? And I know it's me, right? And I hate to think what it, I mean, I was insane. I was completely insane. And what finally happened is, I mean, I actually had a psychotic event from shooting this methamphetamine where I actually thought the police were chasing me. You know, I walked into a bathroom and I heard these. The trouble is that the high, it's harder and harder to get, but the psychotic point stays the same. So when people want to get high on those kind of drugs, they go past the point where psychosis, at least that's my thinking, and it's what happened to me. And I was running around through backyards with my jacket turned backwards so I wouldn't be identifiable. Like, <laughs> I was the most arrestable person in that town. And by some miracle, I didn't. I threw away my big bottle of this precursor that didn't work. And yet I didn't stop using. Mm. Again, I didn't stop using. And then what finally happens, like a month later, I mean, it was, I was wretched. I was spending like, you know, days sitting at home i'd steal a bunch of some kind of morphine from a laboratory and you know just stay at home injecting it watching crappy tv and yeah. not knowing what's going to happen next but i'm staying high so sure. it was that bad so the last thing that happened and this turned out to be unbelievably lucky in that weird way we have where our worst event is our best element of change mm -hmm. is i injected some drug that that made me um it really lowered my blood pressure. It was like I could hardly, or no, it, it gave me an intense peak of blood pressure. Like I was feeling really terrible, it was some mm. variant of amphetamine. And so I mainlined another drug that I thought, because I was a pharmacologist and right. knew about drugs, and I injected that shit, stood up, and keeled over right on the bathroom floor, like a tile floor. Like I actually broke a few ribs and just bam. And the next thing I knew, these two custodians were picking me up like a little dead 108-pound gray rag, picking me up and, um, you know, and taking me to the office. I was brought to the hospital. And the shit I was taking was so weird that they didn't, their assays didn't say what it was. Like, the molecules weren't the ones that are yeah. for standard assay. And, you know, all these professors from the pharmacology department were coming in saying, hey, how are you? And... I got kicked out summarily. You know, it was like that was the end of my PhD. And um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. At the time, I was like, don't they know who I am? Yeah, you know, that sure. thing. I'm a scientist, but I, 
it was the best thing that ever. I got kicked out, with, and they were like, "If we see you here, we're going to call the police." And it was probably lucky they didn't. So did they? Did they at this point? Did they know that you were taken and stealing? Oh, they must. Yeah, by then it was right. obvious because. But I'll tell you, this is how crazy addiction is. Is as I was leaving my, like I was in a laboratory where I, you know, and and my the guy who was getting my PhD with who knew crazy shit was going on. These are all subjects of nine steps far in the future. <laughs> You know, after the statute of limitations, <laughs> and yeah, so I, yeah. I, uh, while I was packing up my little bit of stuff, like my books, a few things, I stole a bottle of that shit that gave me a pounding headache and lost my color vision, and brought it home. Oh, good. like I brought it back to my parents' home. So my parents are told Randy's been kicked out of his PhD program, and you know you're gonna have to deal with him, and you know. So I go home, and they, I mean, they were relieved that I could speak you know coherently like I, I don't think they knew what to expect and mm. you know i was just a mess but i was a mess who also scored some coke down in the city that very trip like that wasn't enough losing my career wasn't enough right but it did have an important moment is i had to admit what happened like people say what happens i got kicked out of grad school because i was using too many drugs like that's how i put it you know i was sure. doing too much of a thing that everyone does you know? yeah sure and it was so extreme, and I went back to Ann Arbor. What, what was your fe- what was that feeling though? I mean, when you got kicked out, you were saying it was the best thing that happened. But at the time, were you? Well, it was a mix because I was incredibly relieved that that something had blown up. Like, because I was going to just keep doing that, like sneaking into that building. Like, I did things like get a fake ID card and go into these other laboratories and steal what they had. Like they're, you know, the things they were using day to day to experiments and little bitty aliquots, like stealing all of those, but only the active versions, not the control. Versions. I bet after you left, they've got fucking cameras right away. Uh, yeah. Well, I think it was too they, early for that, but now they would. Yeah, oh, for sure. Have to ninja up. Like yeah. <laughs> he's dressed all in black, but he's going yeah. to the right stuff. But well, I, you know, there's addicts that are doing it right now too. Yes. Well, that's a funny thing you say. I've had people reach out to, well, this is another thing. I'll get to this. But so I, w- I decided to go back to Ann Arbor where I was living. But I had a little teeny apartment. And um, my dad, who was sending me a little bit of money to help me with grad school, which was super great. He just said, I can't help you anymore. Mm. You know, I can't send you anything. And suddenly I had like no money and no connection, no career. But there was this... and. I, you know, it's, maybe it's because I'm sort of a, a pathological optimist. I don't know what, but I felt an incredible relief that I was not in that world, that I was not foraging for dope. I mean, I was doing shit like stealing bottles of methadone and putting it in solution and mainlining that shit. Like, like you know, huge doses of it to just alone, to just stay high. Like, one thing... I, it was just, it, it was constant, constant using of any sort. And the harder it was to get the drugs, the lower my standards went. You know, the, this shit that robbed me of my color vision that I took home. I remember that that stuff in solution would turn brown and I would still use it. I remember my younger brother came in, like I was in bed home for Christmas. And he goes, what's that? Like, you know, I had the vial on my dresser and it was like turned brown, like because it was so chemically unstable. Like, I'm unbelievably lucky my vision came back Mm. and that, you know, that all is well, like because I had no idea what I was doing. I had all sorts of ideas. what I was doing, So but I had no idea 
how completely unregulated I was. I mean, it's starting to dawn on me. But it, it was, and by the end of that time, I knew I had an intense problem, but I did not understand how to get out of it. Mm. But the, the first thing, I sort of step one by accident, is I knew that I was completely powerless over this shit. Like, I didn't have that terminology, but I was like, I cannot control this at all. So what happened was, uh, before I went to New York, actually, a friend of mine who, to this day, I honored him when I put on Facebook that I turned for everyone years, is this guy was running one of these laboratories. He was a young postdoctoral fellow, a lot of responsibility in doing uh, laboratory studies with animals with lots of these drugs and, you know, morphine and fentanyl and all this other stuff, cocaine, variations of it. And I would rob his lab, and he knew I was doing it. But when it came time for me to get help, he's the person who found the guy who got me into recovery. Wow. And which is, and he, you know, you know that old saying, if, if I had what I deserved, I'd be dead. If I had what I deserved from him, if he, if he had demanded justice from me appropriately, then as opposed to showing me grace, I, I would have been in jail or dead or whatever. Like this cat found me a drug counselor who was not going to be freaked out by my knowledge of, I knew a lot about drugs. Like I knew a lot about the sign, like the receptors and the molecules and all that sciencey shit that has nothing to do with getting you clean. It has a lot to do with how you get high, but it has nothing to do with getting you clean. And um, he, you know, cleaned me up before I went home and like physically, like got a book to teach, to learn how to give me a haircut. Like this guy was an awesome mm. human being, like a total mensch. And then he found this guy, Jim Balmer, who's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He said, I found a guy who's not going to be snowed by your knowledge of drugs, and you're going to go to him. And I started, I went back to Ann Arbor and started taking the bus, the Washington County bus, out to this family, child and family services and meeting this guy once a week. And the relief I felt of not having to forage for drugs went a long way, I think, to helping. Like, it was, I, it was I was so relieved to just not be, to have a solution that even involved blowing up my career is like, you know, I said this in many ways, like there's that Buddhist phrase, if you're breathing, most of the things are, more things are right in your life than not. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in the same way, I was like, I'm okay. You know, I'm not dead. I'm not running around committing crimes. Like it was, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get money and all that stuff. So I, I started on the recovery path there, and this guy, Jim, I would go to him. He was, at the time, I mean, now he has 53 years clean, or he has 11 years more than me, so he has 52 years. He's a newcomer. <laughs> so he's, but he had 11 years when I met, and I went and met this guy, and you know what? It was just an interpersonal connection. It was a connection. He, like he, first of all, you know, the loneliness, like I didn't use with any, like when people use with each other, at least they have some connective sense of other people doing that. I was utterly alone doing this, like stealing the drugs, going back to my house. It was like I was the only person in the world doing this, which I know is not true, but it felt that way. So when I met someone who not only was not horrified by my stories, had heard them all, you know, how I love how newcomers go in the rooms, they tell you stories about how much they're taking, we're all like, check, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. they think it's like horrible because they've been alone. Right. Like, or that's at least one Right. explanation and so i this guy i was intrigued i was completely intrigued that that he you know had gotten clean and had this and was not snowed by my great knowledge 
And um, so I st- we started going to him. He earned my trust. He tricked me. He was like a manipulative addict, mm-hmm. manipulated me. He goes, okay, well, I need you. He goes, you like coming? He was a great big guy at the time. And uh, now we're both old, so he's a little more <laughs> withered. I saw him like about six months ago. We had lunch in Ann Arbor, which was – he's like a huge – takes no credit. But he and this this normal guy who got me in touch with him, I, I owe them my life. I really look at that that way. He used to sit here like this. I joke that this is the Navajo sign for bullshit because right, he, right. he would sit yeah. there while I talked complete craziness, like just insane, but thinking I had it all together. And he said, okay, well, I need you to uh, – do one more thing. You like coming? I said, yeah. He goes, you like what you're learning? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I need you to do one more thing. I said, what? And I thought, you're in Taz, Sam. I was, he, he was testing me and stuff. And he said, I need you to go to uh, meetings. And I go, what are those? Because it was so long ago that I, you know, now 12-step recovery is like floating into the medium. And most, some of it's good. Some of it's, I hate how every time somebody has a sponsor, it's the opposite sex in the media. <laughs> like they just don't get that. It's, it's not Hollywood enough to just have two people interacting, you know, or without a separate conversation. Right. But so he said, you have to go to these meetings. And I said, what kind of meetings? He goes, oh, they're meetings. And actually, at the time, it was it was the older fellowship. It was AA because there was no NA in Ann Arbor at that time. It was just there were there were one or two meetings and very not. It wasn't they had no traction yet. So I started going to the other fellowship, you know, the older fellowship. And uh, he said, you need to go there. And um, and he tricked me. He goes, I know everyone in that fellowship. So if you don't go, I'm going to know it, which is completely nuts. <laughs> like, but I said, like, OK, and, <laughs> you know, and I that reptile brain where I was like. You know, I, 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 either I was in trouble or I was not in trouble. And to this day, I still have that reptile brain wrestling match, but much, much less so. But so I said, I better go. So I went to my first 12-step meeting, you know, and I, it is so funny. It's like, oh, God, I literally walked through the snow to get there because it was <laughs> Ann Arbor, Michigan in like February. And, you know, the snow was a blowing. And I mm. go to this meeting as a basement of a church. And you know how it is. Like, there's two responses to your first meeting. I'm home or I'm fucked. And I was definitely in group B. Like, I went there, and and I was like, oh, my God. Like, it was literally the basement of a church, and all these hail fellows well met, you know. Hey, all these cheery people. And, you know, and I also was just so full of myself. I still thought I knew a great deal about the things they're wrestling with, which was complete nonsense. And um, I went to that meeting, and, you know, I had my difference engine my judgment machine like on full blast like you know like you guys probably have a cute phrase like the you know a blame thrower that's mm. charlie's but there must be one for judgment too yeah. i don't know what it is but i was doing that to the max like judging every person but they read the 12 steps that was the older fellowships 12 steps but you know pretty damn similar and what amazed me and i probably lucky i had no exposure was they were so different than any solution I had ever come up with. Like, you know, I'm not a stupid person, and I had tried a lot of that bargaining control. I tried, I won't use for a week. I'll do that. I had a million versions of how to adjust and and alter my using, and none of them got me anywhere. So here's this room full of people, all having a great time, laughing, obviously cheery, and these steps are reading, they're like, first I said, well, these all sound like pretty esteemable things to do. Like, you know, I wasn't that far gone. I thought, you know, admitting you're wrong promptly, that's, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what you did last night? Ah, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Like, and you don't admit, you know, that shit. Like, I, 
none of that made you know but it all sounded really awesome and it all sounded incredibly mysterious like how in the world does this keep people from using but what intrigued me was like i had never thought of any of it like i i never woke up in the morning and went i need to make a list of people i've hurt and make amends from i that would never popped into my mind with all the solutions i was exploring so they're, you know, they were doing something radically different and getting radically different results for me, and that did get my attention. So I went to meetings for a while, and I never was super... I remember I asked the guy to be my sponsor, and he just said no. I think because I was just so nuts, he didn't know what to do with it. I, I don't know, but, you know, and that probably... We wouldn't do that now. We would find someone... I think we've learned as a fellowship and, you know... Man, you must have been real wild if yeah, that guy no, said I, no. He said no, yeah. And he was a NASA engineer, so he wasn't snowed by my... Really? But yeah, but I probably just seemed so sketch and so weird at the right. time. I was... My, my friend Jim now, who I still know, the guy who got me clean, he, yeah. he sometimes will sit there and he'll shake us and go, God, you were so fucking nuts. It's just <laughs> such a miracle that you're here. Yeah. So, but I'll tell you a story about that is when I started going to meetings and I would talk to Jim about them and... What sunk in, and I'm very lucky because of what happened next, is I'm very lucky. What sunk in was that I was an addict, and there was absolutely no bargaining with that. And it was an issue of faith I embraced. And it was unbelievably powerful because once you accept that, like that first step. Admission, yeah, yeah. Yeah, admission that you're an addict. Then it just becomes a feature, not a problem. Yeah. Like I once had a guy, I was talking at a rehab in a, kid you know and i still go through this imposter thing where i go to a rehab and i think i don't have anything to offer these cool street kids who have used all this shit like i don't what do they have and i know that that's bullshit that's just the addict in me speaking the language of recovery to keep me away from recovery like the addict in me is an incredibly fluent speaker of recovery language and so i know that that's what that is but a kid said they were a question and answer like they do in you mm -hmm. know in h and i and he said well do you you know consider your addiction like a deficiency you know, mm. and I said, I consider it just a a, a, a uh, topographical map that I have to navigate. Like, if you're on a river and you know you have rapids and rocks, you will take a kayak and you'll paddle around them. Right. If you're on a river and you don't know that, you will smash your rubber raft into it and sink. So it's really a matter of those are the landscaping features that I have, and I can either navigate around them, you know, in a joyful, useful way, that includes admitting they're there or fight them and God knows where that would be. So, but, um, so I started going to these meetings and I, another thing that happened and I will never forget this cause it was, you know, I was thinking a lot about addiction and, and I think I'm lucky that I quickly embraced that I was an addict and I, um, I was walking, I got a little job. I lied my way into a job at, at Zingerman's deli, which now has does like, 130 million dollars a year and they were like exploded into this huge food emporium business that it's a whole separate thing but i was there very early on and uh started working there and i remember i was living in a single bedroom with like a elevated platform i slept on and i i was hoping it would be the tableau de la more but it mm. was the monastery in the sky so i was sleeping there <laughs> and up at the top <laughs> but i would walk a few blocks to work and um, my life was going really well, like we like we do. You know, my life right, was right. going really well. And that was 
also just so incredibly relieved to not have that madness of like the shit I was doing. You know, the night ops and the injecting shit from the bottom of a reaction vessel, just crazy shit that it took me years to sort of package usefully. Mm. But I remember I was walking to work and, you know, I came from a place intellectually and academically where it's all about solving problems. Mm -hmm. And to this day, my occupation involves solving problems at the molecular and cellular level. And that's an awesome gift of recovery. But I remember going, addiction is not a problem I have to solve. It was this, mm. I mean, we all hear that, but it was so powerful. It's like, this is a puzzle that involves figuring out what to do, not why it happened or what's the mechanism. And I think the mechanism is interesting, but it's almost irrelevant to how to get clean. It's top down. We act this way and we change. And so it was like this huge relief. Like, I don't have to solve the riddle of how it came to be or what it is. I just need to do the things that I'm being told to do, mm. which did not keep me from relapsing once. So what happened was I had a few, uh, I think about a year or two, things were going maybe a bit longer. Things were going well. <laughs> and I started doing stand-up comedy. You know, I'd always wanted to do this. And I, I had like, I was working in this food services thing, chopping the seven North American vegetables or whatever and preparing deli trays, you know, catering like you and I were talking about earlier. And uh, so I had a lot of time on my hands. I was reading, you know, and I had no money, which was actually kind of useful. That's when I started running, too. I started running right when I got clean. But bef right before then, I started doing stand-up comedy. And I um, was, there was a, it was like sort of a boom that time. So it wasn't hard to get into it. I started going to this club on campus and doing like five-minute things. And, you know, it was terrifying, but super fun. And, you know, I was able to cobble together bits and do that really yeah i was doing the stand-up and there was a little crew of people doing it and at the time i first was drinking while i did it you know i was sort of in relapsy mode and uh one night i do you remember any of your bits yeah but they're they're so contextual they're not they're not super funny now you know really? they're really contextual but yeah that's yeah and um <laughs> We're about to get it, huh? Yeah, I want, no, I want yeah. to know. No, no, no. It's uh, they, it would not fly here. It, they were okay, yeah. and um, you know, I I learned that it's a lot of work and it's really a lot of practice. It, you have to practice to act like you're not practicing. You know, like the really good comedians are very practiced, but they sound like they're making that shit up on the spot. Some do, but most. Even Robin Williams was highly modular. He had modules, and he was phenomenally adept at inserting them into different places. And also, sometimes I'm sure he'd makeup stuff because he was phenomenally brilliant but yeah i, I like co comedians that just like they just stand there and they just like like do the build up yeah and then the build up the build up and then bam, bam and yeah. then the, and then that just kind of rolls yeah, to the next i promise then, you, you know. that's highly orchestrated too. yeah like they make it feel like the bam just came out of the sky yeah but right. they usually are very in control yeah but like, it's cool David Chappelle is probably like the he's best. Amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's the best one. Like he's he just amazing. like he just gives you this big. God, I wish there's a blah, video blah, blah. of you doing stand up. No, I'm thank Ugh. God there's not. God, We're gonna find it. So thank, fucking great. Thank God there's no. It was pre-internet. Thank God. <laughs> We're gonna find <laughs> thank, it. Thank uh. the Lord. <laughs> so anyway, what, what, um, what, what, what was your comedy about though? What were you? What, what was your jokes? Was okay. Some sex, political events. You know the usual. Yeah. Saying the f word a lot. Of course. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It nice. was a mixed bag. It was fun. But anyways, I, one night I did it, and I ended up, I emceed this first night, this show. So you have to, so then you, 
you have to like between the comedians either keep people laughing or get them laughing at the comedians bad always at their expense you know like uh, you know mm-hmm. so i did that and i met this woman who i was at this party like as a group of people who invited me to their house because i had done this thing and it was all people I didn't know. And suddenly a great big bag of Coke is floating around. Nice. And I'm like, yeah. And it was one of those moments. I had, I think, nine months clean, longer than that. And I just thought, no one knows me. It was the usual. I'm glad it happened once because it makes me understand what other people go through. Mm. And I, this big bag of Coke, and I snorted it. And then this woman who owned it ended up at my place and she was like a fire eater, like one of these theatrical yeah. sorts, and yeah. dressed in a black jumpsuit. And I mean, I look Hell back; yeah. we were all young, and she had some kind of boyfriend who had provided this coke. Yet she was at my place. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Love but it. She went off. She went off to go to the bathroom, and I stole a big bunch from her bag. Like I went into her purse, stole it. She cool. comes back. We're chatting some more. Now I'm terrified that, like, God knows what's going to happen. So I used for like a couple more days. And I'll tell you something is even though I now was in the, you know, the recovery life a little bit, going to meetings, earning this guy gym, enjoying my life, I searched my little single room with the Tabla del Amore slash monastery in the sky for a needle. I looked all over and couldn't find it. Mm. And I just snorted. And then my clean day was two days later, I went to work at Zingerman's Deli, my little prep cook outfit. Mm. And uh, I went into the bathroom there. And flushed that shit down the toilet. Now it was January fifteenth, nineteen eighty-three. Like that was the day I did it. It was I was working that day, and I just something came over me. I said I need to get rid of this, mm. and I flushed that shit. My first sponsor was that toilet, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. I, I flushed it. I can take care of it. Put it in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just act. Don't worry about thinking. You don't have to solve this problem. And so I did that, and then for about two weeks, I didn't do anything. You know, I continued going to work. I didn't. Go to me, he's in Jim Bomber, called me up. And Jim was a big dude, but he had a pretty high voice at the time. He calls me, he goes, and phones were all attached to the wall back then. Yeah. He calls me up, he goes, right. how you been? And I go, I'm okay. He goes, do you use? I go, I did. He goes, better you than me. That's the first time I ever heard that, because we all say nice. that now. You know, like the <laughs> fireman has to be fit before they pull something yeah, out of yeah. the building. And I remember I was all offended. I go, what do you mean better you than me? He goes, well, I, I don't want to use and. And I said, oh, I know I fucked up. And he goes, no problem. He goes, there's a meeting across the street from where you live. I was on Main Street in Ann Arbor, and there's a community center. There's still a meeting there after all these years. I walked. It was literally across the street. That's amazing. It was providential. I walked across the street. And back in those days, the uh, older fellowship used to do this great thing. It was was called the Detroit model for meetings. They'd have little separate tables where you each table would decide on a topic. I mean, I someone tried to start that meeting style here, and it came and it bubbled out and failed. Because you need a big meeting to do it to break up in little tables. Mm-hmm. We most of our meetings aren't big enough. But I went to the and they had this is so AA. They had a table called the barefoot table, which is <laughs> means you just whatever you want to talk. So I sat at the barefoot table, and I um, and I probably the NA would be the what's up motherfucker table. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it'd be something edgier. Yeah. But I go to the barefoot table and I. And they said, what do you want to talk about? I said, I relapsed a few weeks ago. I'd like to talk about that. And I remember every single share at that table. Like, it was because it was the fellowship helping me do what I couldn't do alone. Like, I didn't put it in that language. But it was like, I remember basically, you know, one guy said, you know, they were all empathetic because nearly everybody who gets clean or sober 
has a, you know, like Darren, the plumber says, it's a try, fail, try, fail, try, succeed program. That is so, that's, if you're lucky, it's just three, you know, like yeah. it's, right. so, you know, it was my one relapse so far, 41 years later, fingers crossed, mm -hmm. knock on wood, but, mm -hmm. you know, it was, I remember that night like it happened yesterday because it was that use the fellowship helping me, you know, understand a different way. And I went back across the street and started going to meetings again. Nice. And then um, I just, I'll tell you my one really intense spiritual experience. Am I talking too much? No, you're I good. No, this is great. Okay, because yeah. I. You're, you're, you're taking over the show. I like it. I don't like uh, that, though, because you guys have like all this great riffing. No, that's great. Bomb sounds yeah. and all this no, shit. No, oh, you want some bombs? I was about to say, you want some bombs? Hold on. God damn it. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay, right. good, good. I feel more part of the right. LMG. Yeah, man. <laughs> like, okay. No, so look, I knew I knew going into this show. I mean, these listen, these are the shows that I really love to do. When I have to keep asking questions and prodding, I mean, people don't want to hear me anyways. They want to hear the guest. You know what Alice I mean? Alice so, of a dust and yeah. Rafa. <laughs> I know, but Shut up, Kenny. No, I want to hear Rafa. Yeah, this, is, <laughs> this is good. All right, so anyways, what happened was then I finally sort of got the clean thing going on. Like, I, I still didn't have a sponsor. I still didn't do the steps, but I went to meetings a lot, and I had this connection with Jim, and I would meet him. And then he finally, he started a facility called Dawn Farm that's functioning to this day that's gotten that. If you meet anyone from the Detroit area, the chances are very high they either know someone who went to Dawn Farm or they went there. Like, it's an actual farm. And Jim used to say to me, if you relapse again, you're coming to the farm. Mm. <laughs> I was like, that was enough to keep me clean. I was you like, said, fuck like, that. you got to milk cows and shit. Like, no, <laughs> it's cold as fuck out there. Right? No, yeah, yeah, it's cold. <laughs> like, it's too much. But uh, Dawn Farm's awesome. Yeah. So, but he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually stop seeing clients. I'm going to go do this Dawn Farm thing. So I kept going to meetings, but I didn't, you know, I guess I stayed engaged enough. And this was lucky. Like, I was very lucky. And then I, had this experience this was the craziest experience and i don't know how where to put it because i'm i I, I call myself an ecstatic agnostic like you know i know that the nature is so miraculous and super that i don't need a supernatural like supernatural to me is a redundant term if it's natural it's super and so for me that's enough miracle that i don't need the icing of some sort of deity on top of that but i think th that's a whole higher power thing we'll get to that but mm. but um so I was not knowing what's going to happen. Like, I was working in this deli. It's starting to explode. They realized that I was much better at counting than chopping vegetables, so they moved me to the office. I organized the office and, you know, did got their sort of accounting together, and they're doing, like, you know, thousands of dollars a day now, marketing and sort of it. And I thought I could either, like, do this, like, go into this business thing, become, like, involved in this business, or do the science. But... At that time, like I had, I think, three years clean now, and I was not yet, I did not yet fully understand that addiction was the entire root of all my problems. Right. And that recovery was the entire source of all my answers. <laughs> like, right. it was really, I know that sounds super woo-woo, but it was that simple. What's going on, guys? Dustin with the LFG 1904 show. Proud to announce our partnership with Law Tigers. If you have been in a motorcycle accident, let's get you the compensation you deserve today and get you back on the road. Go ahead and call this number, 858-306-1986. Once again, that number is 858-306-1986. Law Tigers, nationwide, doesn't matter where you're at. Call that number, LFG. 
And I had sort of had an inkling to that, but I wasn't told. I, I was afraid of science because last time I was involved with science, all that shit happened. And I, you know, there's correlation. This happened at the same time, and there's causality. And the addiction caused the science to go to shit. The science did not cause the addiction. Didn't know that. And I, I remember I would be afraid to pick up, like, there's a magazine called Science Magazine. It's basically a scientific journal that they somehow saw in the news. And I would open that and see, like, some article that is in the field I was in. I'd be, like, mesmerized. But I'd have to put it away because... I, d I was afraid of the mm. science. And I remember mm. the dean of this first guy I ever wrote a paper with, you know, a biochem very famous biochemist, came into the deli. And he's like, um, you know, by then I was very comfortable there. And, and I had started running, and he wanted advice about running. So that's a whole other thing I need to get into. I'm being fragmented. But I, I remember I started running right when I got out through that read, got clean. And I think I joked. I now talk to young people about my addiction, and I say that using drugs was the worst uninformed decision I ever made, and running was the best uninformed decision I ever made, because I really didn't know shit about that either. I just thought, I remember I was living in the little one-room apartment, and I said, I got to start doing some physical activity. And I don't know where that came, because I was like, so I was the guy, I was the guy who, you know, when they chose squads at school, this was a much less enlightened time, you know, if I got chose, the whole of the squad would go, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. God, <laughs> you know, God damn it. asshole. And then often I wouldn't get <laughs> chose. I'd stand out there at night. The gym class would end. School would go out. The moon would come out. I'd be standing there right. waiting. No, I'm kidding. And exactly. The next day I'm still there. The squads come yeah. back. They, they choose the girl in the wheelchair or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, and that's good. And she's better at this than I am. So I turned me away from sport completely. Like, right. I think it even yeah. helped me become the sort of sciencey guy I am because I was like, you know, I had a resentment that was of, you know, God won't remove a defect of character that helps you do his work. I love that idea right, that right. our worst traits could sometimes get us good places right. as long as we eventually see it. But I decided I have to start running or something. So I got a pair of, roll it was pre-rollerblades, so I just got some skates. Tried that out. I said, well, this is cool, but you have to go to a place. And, yeah. You know, I don't know. It's not the that next, great. The next day I went running. Now I watch people skating. Oh, that's so awesome. I wish I had done that instead, but I'm kidding. I ran like around the block and I thought, this has potential. Mm. And I just started doing that. And I, you know, just started running every day. And there was so little known about it that, you know, it just became a huge part of my life. And I, it, it's just been like a, a different carrier where like using was. It's been something that I've done my whole life and I'm just really and you know we talk about recovery being a mental spiritual and physical thing and the mental thing is this whole wonderful life I have in the academe the spiritual is this so what happened was I didn't know what was going to happen and I started running a lot like I could run five ten miles and I was just really enjoying that and I got the right shoes and got people to help me and this was the craziest thing I was living in a cool apartment you know like I had a place and you know, I had a girlfriend, and then that fell apart, and it all was well. Like, life was rolling as it does, and I was very, very glad to be clean and sober. You know, I was still mm. going to those meetings, not as much, mm. but I I went out running, and I was super perplexed about what was going to happen. Like, I was like, what is going to happen to me? I don't know what's going to happen. Very confused. It was like Ann Arbor, it's like it goes from winter to summer in like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it was like an April day where it was like 70. It's probably cooler, but it felt warm because <laughs> like it's yeah. so cold there. Sure. But it was, it, it was like a warm day, like probably 65, 70. And I went out running and it was this rain washed afternoon. I worked like 
when you, the bookkeeping was done in the basement of this place for a while, right next to these huge compressors, so you, I would like often work with my shirt off because it was so hot. <laughs> it was like things have changed a lot for that wonderful <laughs> business now. But I went out running. I ran a few miles up this steep hill called the Broadway Hill in Ann Arbor. I turned around. Park Davis had a, you know, had a big facility there, and I mean, maybe there's some resonance in that because they're a big biomedical facility. I run by, thinking, what's going to happen? And then suddenly, and I don't know what this was about. It's never happened before since. Like, the only way I can describe it is time became an object. Like, it was the craziest thing that's ever. I mean, it was like it literally time instead of being a linear flow through you know through our what we're experiencing it became this object you could examine mm. i mean this obviously was all in my mind's eye and i was able to examine this object and see that i was going to become a scientist that that's what was going to happen i mean and the thing is it was so you know how you have certainty that the sun's going to rise tomorrow this was certainty that the sun rose yesterday like it was the different certainty of being and I am the most uncertain person on the planet. Like, I don't know. I'm not mm. sure. So the fact that that happened was so weird. I actually stopped running. I was like, what was that? And I thought, could it be residual drugs in my fat stores? It's been mm. three years. I mean, it was so, <laughs> so a weird experience. And I, and, but it was this incredibly comforting experience. I said, okay, I know what's going to happen. Like it was literally, this is going to happen. And you don't have to worry about it. Like, like weirdly, and I know some people live that way all the time. I'm not that way. Mm, so it was this right. uniquely weird experience. Okay, so I run five miles home, still thinking about this. Now, had it just happened in isolation, it probably would have vaporized away. I get to my house. Literally, as I open the door, the phone's ringing. The phone is attached to a wall back in the day. Before your time, young man, it was <laughs> attached to the wall with these things called wires. And so... I go over, pick up the phone. It's my oldest friend, Doug, who's like, I've known him since we were four. I'm 69. I'm, I literally met him in the sandbox. Like, pass me that bucket, bro, with mm -hmm. a shovel. Mm -hmm. No, that's my <laughs> shovel. Like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was him on the phone. He goes, I'm working in this lab in Wisconsin. We're figuring, how are we going to get you back into science? <laughs> like, wow. I was like. That same day? It was that minute. It was minutes after yeah. that. Like, I had that experience. I ran home. The phone rang. And this says, how are we going to get you back into science? I'm like. And I didn't admit this story to him because it just seems so woo-woo for years. I just said, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. Sure. But inside I'm going, holy shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so he goes, well, you know, I'm talking to my boss, Chris Rates, who turns out to be an incredibly prominent biochemist. But I didn't know who he was because I was out of that world. Because I was talking to Chris and told him about your situation, including the trouble you had and and he wants to talk to you. The He's, trouble you, you had. Know, they, they, <laughs> fucking you know, massive amounts of fucking yeah. drugs you're still in. You know, just say. that little trouble. Well, that you're the copious think, amounts think, of yeah. random shit you put in your body. Well, I, think, I think normies do that as a courtesy. Absolutely. You know, like, the, you were so fucked when I told him, but, you know. know. So he said the problems you had or your sure. drug problem. And so, because Doug was actually very, he was one of the, because he's a physician and actual doctor, he was very concerned and helpful at the right times. But I, um. Picked up the phone, and it was this guy, Chris, we're talking, and he goes, and he knew the dude who was the biochemist who came wanted running advice, who now was a dean, and that dean had said back then, he goes, I can write you a fancy dean letter if you want to get back into science. I was like, I don't know. This was a few months before that. Right. And so Chris said, well, you know, put a resume together. Resume? Like, used for five years, keeled over, <laughs> chopped vegetables. Yeah. Like, I don't know what a resume is going to look right. like, but... 
I sort of said, okay. And I the next week, I went out to Wisconsin. He was at University of Wisconsin and interviewed with him. And, and, and like from that moment on that hill till now is just a straight line of that all coming to pass. Like it's mm. insane. So where's the recovery piece, right? So what happened was, and this, do not try this at home. Like, I, and I think different people respond differently to this is I left Ann Arbor and I left fully convinced I was an addict and able, like this guy, Chris, who I worked with, he knew that I, you know, I'd had, it was in recovery that I w- had this drug problem that now was okay. In fact, the first time I had the flu, Chris goes, I thought you were back out using drugs again. Like, of course. Like he knew, cause I disappeared for a couple of days. Right. So, but in, in the sense that was great cause it was open and free. I could be open about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but I didn't go to any <coughs> meetings. I didn't do any of that. Hmm. And for years I didn't go to meetings, but I, I think I'm lucky. I took what How I come? I, you know what? I just didn't feel a great <coughs> need or a love for them, which I now have. Like, I didn't feel that. I just was able. I think I was so convinced I was that. Plus, I was in a super supportive environment where people knew. And I was think I was getting accidentally the kind of fellowship that I needed. Hmm. Never were triggered or anything, though, during those times. Never really, you know. Hmm. And, and I actually, I remember once I visited my dad and he had some opiates in a, you know, in a. Yeah. Jar. A jar, a, a bottle. And I said, oh, those are opiates. Like, it was really beautiful, My, because I had this amazingly healthy fear of drugs that I think was just lucky. But the truth is, I didn't go to meetings for a long time. And then I remember I got my PhD with Chris, with the, you know, and then I went into what's called a postdoctoral fellowship in, Ann Ar- in Berkeley. I went back to Berkeley, but this time it all worked out. And I went to a fancy genetics lab and started working on the problem I've been working on ever since. And uh, I had this great, cool life, but I never forgot, you know, that I was in recovery. Hmm. And I, I used tools that I had learned, and I think I just luckily grabbed them out the door. And the sponsor I had later, because I did end up, obviously, in the fellowship in a big way, he said, you stole what you needed from us when you spent those years away, and now you owe us. <laughs> and that was super valuable. Like, that yeah. is actually an ethos I you know, oh, it's every day I have clean, I now realize is a day I owe to recovery and to NA. So, mm-hmm. you know, or to fellowship, whatever. So I had I had complex things going on there that I was able to navigate. Like my girlfriend ended up uh, being with my postdoctoral advisor. Like they were hooking up. I didn't know it. And like, Man. that was crazy. Like, you know, things like that. Oh, you're a better man than me. Well, no. And, and you know what? I, I, you're right. And yeah. I actually remember finding this out, storming out, and then having a, like a very recovery self-sponsorship pep talk. I said, Randy, because I went out and I was going to raise holy hell and demand yeah. justice, right? But I said, why are you are here? You are in this place for the science you're doing, and that's going great. Right. You're not here for any other reason. Other things are great, too, or might uh-huh. be great. But you're here for that. You need to focus on that. And, that, and I put it aside. So I think I had great, because that sounds like something a sponsor would say. Absolutely. You know, but I don't know where that came from. I had a bicameral mind. So what ended up happening is while I was doing this postdoctoral fellowship, I suddenly said, I wonder what my clean day is. Like, I didn't know. I knew that it had happened, this dramatic thing, the toilet. It oh, was a yeah. Friday. And I had done stand-up comedy the week before that, that Wednesday, because that's when they did it. So I was able, with the rudimentary internet, very rude, like we got email in black and white, 
Jesus. Mm-hmm. Oh, hello. <laughs> so I, I uh, you got mail. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, right. Even before that, that was like that's a cool thing it tells you. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I went back to calendars and announcements and figured out that I had ten years clean. Oh wow! wow. So I have ten years. And I and I went. When is my clean? I said it was that Friday after the first Wednesday laugh track. This was called. I figured that. So it must have been January fifteenth. That's the day I flushed the shit down the toilet. And then I and from that day on, I started embracing it a little bit. So I remember I went to the Bad Lieutenant. I took myself to a movie. And Bad Lieutenant's like perfect because it's so demented, right? Mm. But I took myself. I celebrated. I, I went out and had a little, you know, I. Went to a movie. I took myself to a movie in the afternoon. It was mm-hmm. fun. I went home. And and that would became I became I started honoring my clean day way late. And again, you know, the the thing I'm remorseful about now is that there's so much growth and positivity being in the fellowship and in active recovery that I lost all that spiritual growth. You know, right. I and I was a handful. Like, you know, I have the girlfriend I had then, Molly, is long gone, but we still know each other. We're still friends. And uh, you know, she, I know that she understood sort of the recovery path and she went into that kind of uh, therapy later, you know, part of her clients were that. And I know she, one of the reasons we didn't make it because I was like completely crazy, like, you know, unbridled, no sponsor, all that stuff and thus lucky. So what happened was I, I, after my post, like I got this awesome job at UC San Diego and I, uh, I started off not going to meetings but knowing I had this experience when I was still at Berkeley, I went to UC, I went to University of Washington for a big convention, a big scientific meeting. And uh, we gave this fancy talk and introduced these new cool molecular reagents that light up cells and certain, that's cool. And me and the guy who presented this stuff for the lab stayed a couple extra days. And he had a terrible drinking problem. This cat like had, had blackouts and run-ins with the law and all this stuff. So I would talk to him, but we never, it never was, so, now I would just take him to a meeting without a right. thought, right? So it was like this <coughs> dormant thing. I remember I go into a bookstore, like Seattle still has phenomenally used bookstores. I go into a used bookstore and they're facing me. Right there is the basic text. Like, eye level, so down here. No, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. eye level, <laughs> eye level. Yeah. I'm diminutive to yeah. those who are listening. So yeah. eye level, and it was, th- and I said, oh, this is their big book. This is that other, that that drug fellowship's big book. I pulled out, and amazingly, and this will amuse you at how mm. weirdly rare it was, it was completely pristine. Because now we go, like, keep coming back, RX, read one right, page, right. right? All that shit, hang in there. If that had been marked that way, I probably wouldn't have bought it. Mm. I wouldn't have bought it. You know, I just, yeah. oh, it's all messed up. It was absolutely pristine fifth edition. So it was the most, re- I mean, it was like, like the universe put it there for like, okay, here he comes. Yeah. He needs meetings. Right. He doesn't know it yet. He knows his clean date. That's a step. Yeah. So I, I take the book and I said, oh, I'm going to buy, I bought it. And a couple of years later, I'm, so I'm this assistant professor, super high pressure. You know, I'm writing grants, getting this lab going all good, running like crazy. I actually decided to do a postdoctoral fellowship in California so I could run all year round. Like that was, <laughs> you know, a big part of it. And I just started doing very sketchy behavior. You know, mm. I'm not going to go into details, but super sketchy shit that would have been very bad to to manifest. And it probably would have led to using also. And I did not have the vocabulary or the language to think about what I was doing. 
and I was completely perplexed. It involved relationships and other stuff and just very bad. And I was sitting there and I just suddenly said, I need to go to those meetings. Mm. Like it was like any spot, any of you guys, if you heard what I was up to, you, yeah. go, you need to go to a meeting like now. Yeah. But I didn't have that vocabulary. Like I didn't have, I had now like 14 years clean because I now was computing and paying attention to it. But I was sitting there going, I need to go to these meetings and I have that book. So right. I ran and got the book. I started reading it and I went to my first NA meeting and I was, I called the, I got, Call, I was at a 7-Eleven trying to call a helpline and it didn't work out and it was uh, raining. And I finally went to Scripps Hospital. They had a, I jokingly called it Newcomer Island because they all had that, right. you know, the bands yeah, the on. Bands. So <laughs> I went to my first NA meeting with almost 15 years clean. Crazy. And the crazy thing was that now, instead of I'm fucked, I felt like I'm home. I've had both experiences. I went there, I said, this is what I've been missing. Wow. And a couple other times when I was in New Jersey, I, I spent some time in New Jersey when my graduate advisor got a job at Merck and brought all of it. I finished my PhD in New Jersey, which was awesome. And uh, I remember driving up to an AA meeting at a house and driving away. Like I was orbiting around that planet, but like a comet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then I became a moon. And then finally I landed, yeah. you know, like, don't try this at home. This is not a good idea. And um, I went to my first NA meeting and so it was so funny because I was like a newcomer with 14 years. Like so I heard someone say, keep coming back. I said, that's good. <laughs> someone should write that shit down. Yeah. Keep coming back. That's punchy. Right. You know, and every phrase I heard yeah. was like, no matter what, me. what? It, yeah, no matter what, that's the thing. Fuck. That's yeah. what it, that's how it works. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I quickly embraced it. And I mean, it is, it's funny because I had colleagues, I, you know, like, I, they're one of the beautiful things about both the fellowship and being in an institution is you grow up with people there. So one of my colleagues also named Randy, Randy J bro. I mean, he's a <laughs> dear friend to this day. He now shout has, out. He has a job at Cambridge <laughs> and the Karolinska Institute and he's on the Nobel committee. Very <laughs> fancy guy. And, uh, and he and I were close buddies. Like we had coffee every day for like 17 years. And so he watched me transition into going to meetings and, you know, it's like that thing when your kids are growing, you put a little pencil yeah, line. Right, right. And suddenly you see that. The, and he said, he one day said, and, you know, we're fairly science oriented, but became very dear friends. He goes, you have changed so much. Mm. He goes, it's amazing to watch. And and I'll tell you something. The craziest thing is I had all these like, relationship woes and very self-involved, you know. And, and I mean, the trouble is that. When things like that happen, drugs simulate those neural pathways. The actual trouble comes with money. You know, <laughs> finances or romances is the real thing. Drugs imitate them. So you can get in huge trouble other ways too. But I remember I found him. I have these journals I've kept that need to be destroyed before I die. <laughs> and they must be destroyed. But I, I found in it my entry from my first NA meeting like this. And what was absolutely amazing it almost brought me to tears as I opened it up. And, and the page before is me just going on about how bad my life is. Like, man, he, he, you know. Mm -hmm. And then this entry, I said, went to a first NA meeting. And I discussed people who had really bad situations who were grateful. And how that moved me. Like, people who, you know, are, like, grateful to be in the means, even though they're facing time or they've lost everything. And it, it was like the beginning of inverting, you mm -hmm. know, towards looking out and... And that was the start of my recovery path. And it was, 
And then shit happened so fast. And it was so, I, I kept it super secret for a long time. Like, of course, anyone who knows exactly how many years, months, and days they haven't had a drink, probably in recovery. Yeah. Or right. they've had some horrible DUI accident. Right. And they went right. to prison. One of those two, maybe both. So my colleagues all knew that I didn't drink and they were, but I was very secretive about it. So I would go to meetings like as a separate life, right? And that when I met my first sponsor, I mean, this is my my higher power or the universe works in ways where I am just get slapped in the head with an assumption that's wrong. Like here's an example. Back in the day, it's still, I guess it's going on upstairs. There was this huge meeting called Thomas Street Speaker. And at the time it was a big sort of social meeting. It was on Sundays. There was this guy, Patrick B. He's passed now. So Patrick Blevins, who was like this incredibly charismatic figure, you know, it's like biker looking really into recovery. And he was sort of the mayor of this meeting, you mm. know, and, and uh, Phil W was there. And I, I don't know if he's been on the show, but he actually knew he got clean with Jimmy K. Wow. <laughs> so he's like a really, Philip W is an interesting guy and really has brought, has the roots of NA in his crazy story. You'd be playing that thing like, bah, 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 a lot, yeah. cause he has like <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> shit. You know, from his life, the amazing life, and now 25 years clean, his second 25. So that's a great story, whole mm -hmm. separate thing. Yeah. But um, so I went to this meeting, and I remember this distinctly. I went, oh, it's one of those biker jail meetings. You know, not for me. Like, that was what's going through my mind, mm -hmm. this judgmental shit. I said, I still liked it, but I just thought this isn't. I was looking for a sponsor. I was actively looking for a sponsor. I said, okay, if I'm going to do this. I need a sponsor. I need to do this. I, I'm home thing, really took off and uh so i need to find a sponsor and this guy gets up <laughs> who is dressed in a suit with snakeskin boots turns out he's a neurosurgeon Hello. who you know crashed who black used to wake up in blackout doing neurosurgery on the drugs he was on yeah and and got almost lost his license definitely lost his practice got back in the saddle, you know, figured out his addiction and was giving someone else 15 years. And that's where I heard about this. His name was Dr. Bob McFarland. He's passed now, but so doctor, he hated the name Dr. Bob because it was always associated with the older fellowships, yeah. Dr. Bob. He never mm -hmm. liked that, but everyone around here knew him as Dr. Bob. And, and he was another example of something. He was a brilliant guy, like amazingly, like any topic you brought up, he could discuss for an hour, formula one racing, milk processing, how to make textiles like it's unreal how brilliant this guy was mm -hmm. but the drugs almost killed him and and uh i said this guy like this guy i could do business with like he's you know he's he you know he was perfect yeah he's on and, your level and and also just experientially and and i wasn't gonna like be intimidate him he was gonna be intimidated by me and all yeah. that's good and and a lot of time, like he had, I don't know, like 20 years or something, a little more than me, but all in the fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so I I, um, I went up to him, and, and this is why I think sponsorship is so powerful. It's because I act, this is where you really actually has to ask someone for help. Like they always say, ask people for help, but this is where you have to, the rubber hits the road. You go, I need your help. And I went up, I said, can we talk sometime? And, you know, he said sure and we had coffee and and he basically took me into his family like he was the most we used to go to the you know he was just all about he ran an addiction you know an addiction therapy place like he was the place all the addicts went to and he had this office down in hillcrest he used to walk i used to go to the dave's cafe meeting it was actually mm -hmm. it was a mostly gay meeting at dave's cafe which was a sort of gay hangout 
which turned out to be that was my first regular meeting, which was great because there was a, not a lot of noise of women there. From, you know, it was just like I didn't love the guys kissing me on the neck when we hugged, but it was okay. You know, it was, <laughs> and, and, and it, was it was cool. It was cool because wow. it was mostly about. <laughs> Get them. <laughs> and I, I know some of those dudes to this day who have yeah. many years clean. And it was a great because it was at a terrace. And I just met a bunch of people, you know, who were in recovery. And they became this sort of subgroup of friends. And some mm. of them I know to this day. Um, and they taught me about the NA path, just hanging out with them, knowing them like we all do. And then I secretaried that meeting. And I remember I celebrated 15 years there. It was the first actual like token or oh, shit. token. I took it was 15 years at Dave's, the Dave Cafe meeting on, I think it was Monday nights. And, God, um, can you imagine how that go? Yeah, guys, uh, you know, happy birthday, 15 years. Yeah, that's my first token I've ever taken. <laughs> well, I, I kept The whole room was probably DL. looking at you like, what, what? the I fuck? Know. Well, no, you know why I kept it on the DL? Because I wouldn't want people to think that it's a good idea to be away from meetings. Like, I was super lucky. And... You know, the sketchy shit almost led me back down the path. So, yeah. mm. and all, but more importantly, I lost years of growth I would have had. Like that stuff Randy J said, like, you've really changed yeah. life. That could have been shifted 15 more years. I would have been levitating. Yeah, I was about to say, you've been floating. I'd be floating. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, it all worked out. But as I say, this is not a message that people should avoid meetings. Yeah. I have met other people who have been away for a long time. And also, my sponsees have a super ticket because, you know, anytime I go, you've done steps, I go, how long did it take you, motherfucker? Oh. Like 17 years. Like, okay. Yeah. okay yes, you know what? Guess what? You just got an assignment, motherfucker. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right, yeah. But that was dog years. So, <laughs> you know. But um, so I got to know Bob. I did the steps with him a few times. And like, here's the thing about Bob. This is the amazing thing about Bob is he, I, I had these dear friends. I'm reading a story in the basic text. Mm -hmm. And I go, Wow, this story sounds a lot like Bob's life. He would love this story. This story is so like him. I know he'll totally relate. I told my friends, I discovered this story that Bob's going to love. They go, you asshole, that's his story. And he had never told me he has a story in the basic text. Wow. He never even mentioned it. And of mm. course, you know, new... Uh, Sponsee, I was all offended. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> no, but you don't uh, love me. But it was, it was, it, you know, it was a story called "I Was Unique," and it was a beautiful, beautiful story. And um, I have a story in the basic text too, which wow. is crazy. It's called "Academic Attic," but I wrote it recently, and uh, he wrote rewrote his. Both of ours got into the sixth edition, which was, I mean, the one thing you learn to do as a scientist is write. Yeah. <laughs> but I follow his model. I hardly ever. You know, I'm mentioning it here because it's part of the big story, but I, I never mention it to people. You know, I, I that's Bob's model. Is he, you know, because you wouldn't. I mean, I said, why didn't you tell me? Because I didn't want you to appreciate me or want to be, you know, with me or work with me because of that. You know, right. I wanted, and I thought that's pretty cool. Yeah, you it know? is. So, plus the anonymity thing. Forget any popularity. What, what was item. what was his story? I was unique. Mm. That was his, and mine is academic. But he academic addict. But he died before he got a chance to see. He revised his, and they took it back. Cause, and the thing about I Was Unique that's amazing is he wrote that with two years clean, and he got it so quickly. Like, you know, there's, that, there's a coin that appropriately says there are plenty of people that are too smart to get clean, you know, and, and yeah. that is dangerous. But they're also, when smart people get clean, they often get it really quickly, and they can see patterns and through lines. So he was one of those. Like, he got it. You know, it was... Very cool. But he's the one who told me, he goes, you know, that whole thing about me. Because I used to go, oh, I'm so lucky that I stayed away and didn't die. He goes, 
you're not lucky. You used us. You stole what you needed from the fellowship. Yeah. Use it to stay clean and didn't give anything back. You owe it. Like, I yeah. needed that ca- that stick. And he's right. You know, he's really right about that. But, I mean, so what's going on now is, you know, I, I mean, my life has unfolded in these incredible ways. Like, I, you know, I love that we have one promise. <clears throat> one promise is, you know, freedom from active addiction. But the probability of good shit happening is incredibly high like it's more probabilistic and self-determined like one of the things i love is you know this there's a pamphlet that describes active addiction and it's so uniform like between you and you and me and we have very different stories i'm sure but that pamphlet very accurately describes exactly what i mean the only one i don't have is i didn't get incarcerated and that it would have happened eventually after i got launched out of that institution where i was hermetically protected Mm -hmm. it was only a matter of time right and Mm so you know and all of those yeses as you know are like bored yeses like oh yeah you know if you asked if you brought ip7 along on a date to check out what someone was like let me ask you a few questions about yourself they would run for the hills unless (laughs) they were an addict they go why are you even asking me this right so there's a high uniformity to the using part of addiction, but there's an amazing diversity to the recovery part. There is no IP minus seven because we all like, look at what you guys are doing. Look at this cool business, this family you have. It's like, but it, it makes it like not a lot in recovery makes sense. A lot of it is no secrets, but a lot of mystery. (laughs) But one of the things that's not mysterious to me is, if you use like I did, I was like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365.25 because they're leap year days a year, you know, all of that shit, N- nonstop, all my resources, all money, all energy, everything. And when that lifted, I mean, even in the early days, I felt this real like I could do stand up. I can play music again. I can do whatever. You know, I can, yeah. I was playing street music yeah. too. Like, like all of it grew back. Playing banjo. Playing a damn banjo. Yeah. And so, you know, all of that headroom is made available. It is not the least bit surprising that people start cool businesses, LFG, <laughs> you know, or, or you know, you know that deal. and oh, have, <laughs> have families and shit because it's like there's all this temporal, energetic, spiritual, and emotional headroom to do those things. Like, it's so wonderful. So, you know, what happened with me is I continued on this path and I started thinking, you know, I started examining the anonymity coin. You know, and there's really anonymity is an incredibly powerful idea for two reasons, but they're both sort of related to discredit and credit. You know, mm. they say humility is giving credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. And so one thing anonymity does is protects us from some being blamed for something that's not our fault, our addiction. But it also protects us from taking credit for something that we actually do as a group. Like I don't put my name on the NA fellowship in public because it is something we do as a group. You know, my name is Addict. <laughs> and as a group, we do things we can't do. And I prove that in spades because I tried to do the same things alone that have become straightforward and even joyous in a group. So anonymity has two elements of the importance of keeping it on the DL mm-hmm. and also the importance of remembering that we do this as a group and mm-hmm. I, we don't take ownership as individuals for what we need to do as a group. So I started thinking about that And I started thinking, is there a needle to thread where I could be open about my addiction but not violate that important tradition of of talking about NA, you know, in in a uh, public way? And I realized that we're perfectly, it is not a violation of the tradition to say I'm an addict. 
You know, that is a disease or an illness or a syndrome or a permanent state or an epigenetic mode. I don't know what it is that I have. And it's permanent. It's probably progressive. I don't want to do that experiment. I only have mm. one sample, so I can't waste <laughs> it on the non-control group of not using. Yeah. So, you know, I can't do that experiment. But I have very strong belief that if I started using with the intention of getting high, you wouldn't see me anymore, nor would my beautiful wife or any of that stuff. So I started thinking, is there some way I could do this? Because I, my thinking was, if I'm a biomedical scientist, you know, I... I work in the biology department, I teach classes in metabolism and exercise physiology and molecular nutrition. And also if I'm in that world and this is a biomedical syndrome, probably a complex one, some genetic components, some experiential components, some piece of trauma. But if it's a medical condition, then I have a responsibility to talk about it as a biomedical scientist, just like someone with type 1 diabetes would hopefully be open about it because they could be enlightening about the procedures and complexities of that syndrome. So I thought, is there a way I could do this? So I did this sabbatical. So in our world, you can do these things called a sabbatical where you, um, you get a year off. Now, there are most jobs they wouldn't do this because everyone would head for the hills. The mm. trick with sabbaticals is you offer them in jobs where you don't really want to be away for a year unless you really kind of need it or something like that so you know i had i finally took a sabbatical because my buddy randy j did it and he was like took his whole family to sweden and did all this stuff and i thought i could do that too so i went away for a year i went to an institute and i bought a pickup truck and drove across the country one of the things i learned that directly relates to the power of recovery is i was like how am i going to drive across the country because back in the day, the two things I needed were gasoline and methamphetamine in that order, <laughs> or an opposite order of importance, you know. How am I going to do that? And so I realized that what I would do is every night I would stop <coughs> and go to a meeting. <coughs> and it taught me that experience of going to meetings all over the country and dropping into a town, going to meetings, taught me about the awesome power of the fellowship. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, you... You don't feel alone in the world when you go to a meeting. And it's, it was very, very powerful. But one of the places I did a residency was at the Gallo Institute for Addiction Research. Now, this was really interesting because I spent the days reading about dopamine and other stuff in this laboratory that studies the opiate receptor and how it's involved in the addictive response. And at night, I went to meetings. I don't know who I was spying for. I was either spying for, mm -hmm. you know, it was very cool and it was very interesting to see <clears throat> this sort of two worlds, both trying to solve the same problem in totally <clears throat> different ways. So th this is the first like push towards the anonymity piece as I had to do what's called a group meeting at the end where you, I was in this research group, an old friend of mine who was in the lab, I did my PhD and was running this lab. I still know her. She's a top researcher in sort of opiate receptor dynamics and how cells process them and use them and all that stuff. So I said, I'd like to give a group meeting, but would it be okay if I talked about my addiction? She goes, whatever, you know? <laughs> so I wrote a talk called My Name is Randy, and I compared the scientific literature of addiction to the NA literature. Like, I found through lines of connection, and there are not surprisingly many connections. I mean, a lot of what addiction scientists know is by observing and querying addicts to see what their situation is like and trying to make some science happen around it. So that was the first time I was ever really open about, and I was scared. Like I said, I don't know what's going to happen here. Mm. I talked to some friends about it, 
And um, it went. what happened was I was only there for two more days. I got all these emails from people in the scientific group going, my uncle really drinks a lot or I've, you know, I'm on these meds. And I, I mean, they all had questions because the truth is that if you have 5% of people, you know, who are addicts, it's probably a reasonable estimate. Probably 50% of people have an addict in their lives, just if you do the numbers of how big a typical family is. So everyone's impacted. Everyone is. So that sort of, I said, that's cool. Like, there was no big problem. I got a lot of nice response. And it was the first time I'd ever been open in science about this other world. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to fuse them? And so, and then this is, again, the universe doing what I can't do for mm. myself. So I started being more open about it just public, locally, like with my friends, people I knew. You know, and it was, you know, I mean, if you have 30 plus years and you, you know, and also I had tenure, so I couldn't really be fired unless I did something really egregious. Right. <laughs> and I haven't gone there yet, thank God. So I felt a little safe doing this. And I say, don't try this at home. If you are, you know, have a new job and you have six months clean, do not bounce into your job and go, I'm an addict. That's right. just probably a bad idea. Like I took 30 years to figure out to do this, but I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to be open about this in my situation? So I'm sitting around. It's about six years ago. I get a phone call. I picked up the phone, and it was somebody from Eleanor Roosevelt College, which is one of the six big colleges at UCSD. And they said, "We, uh, you won a teaching award. The students voted you to because you, you know, and that's all about it. The sillier you act, the more teaching awards you get. <laughs> that's all it's about. So, <laughs> so I got it. I got." This nice teaching where I said, oh, that sounds great. And they said, well, would you like to accept it at graduation? I said, sure. And they go, well, uh, okay, come on Friday for a mic check. I said, mic check? Mm. And they said, well, we want you to uh, give a four-minute speech uh, as part of your award. I said, uh, okay, how many people will be there? They go, 10,000. Mm. <laughs> like, 10,000? These are well, kids. mic check? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the mic check. I said, okay, I'll come to the mic check. And and they were really, they needed a printed document of the speech and they wanted it out in that sort of scrolling version that speech writers do. And I had to stand in a little box because I'm too short, <laughs> you know, like yeah. all of that shit. Yeah, yeah. But I went, so I thought this would be a great opportunity to discuss my addiction, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, and I thought it'll be sort of, I talked to a bunch of people about it. I thought it'd be sink or swim. Like if something bad happened, because it's DSM-5 syndrome, chemical dependency syndrome, mm -hmm. I can sue UCSD and get rich. Right. I didn't think that would happen, but I thought that's the worst case win. And the win-win is I nothing happens, and I'm now able to be open about this you right. know, by testing the waters. So I wrote this speech called Unexpected Surprises that was, you know, I, I actually talked about addiction as and running. They were both unexpected surprises. Like, no one, you know, you get expected surprises, like a birthday present. You're probably going to get some surprise. Hopefully it's surprising because it's a gift you didn't anticipate. But it's kind of expected, right? right? Like your kid expects Christmas presents, I presume, or something like that. And so, but addiction, no one ever goes, I knew it was coming. I didn't know what kind of wrapping paper it'd be. And like, that's an unexpected surprise. And in the same way running was too. Like it was surprising how important that had become in my life and how valuable it was, but it, totally surprising. So I wrote this little speech. I practiced it so many times, my now wife refused to come to the ceremony. She was oh, like, boy. she heard it like 1,700 times, you know. And, right. and also, graduation, four minutes, and then hours of people getting their hands shook at diplomas. So I totally get it. And I went there, and I was a little scared. I was scared because it was such a large group of people. But also, I thought, this is, you know, this is really testing the waters. Like, this is it. So I gave my little four-minute speech. 
And the, you know, the speech, you all know these stories. Yeah. And the addiction story goes like this and then that. Yeah. Like, so at about this point where I'm like 108 pounds and gray and, you know, covered with needle marks, I wasn't quite so graphic because it's like kids and their parents and the happiest day of their lives. So right, right. I just like things got very bad. I'm, it's only funny because I live to tell the tale. And I stopped and said, now I know that for many of you, this is an incredibly positive day. And I want to reassure you that this story has a happy ending. Yeah. Plus, I don't want to lose my job. And I turn around, and the chancellor of the university goes, like that. And I go, yay, put his thumb up. So I continued my little speech. And the good news was nothing happened. Nothing happened. Like, in the good, I got a couple emails from students. I got one email from a student at graduate said, my parents are both addicts. Mm. And we're wrestling with this. And I'm really glad to hear you wow. share about it. But what it allowed me to do then is to be completely open about my syndrome. You know, I'm still very, I'll privately talk about the fellowship and that solution, that path up the mountain, but I don't advertise about NA because I think there's, I understand that tradition as being right. important of not taking credit or being the mayor or the president of this wonderful, completely anarchistic in the useful sense, totally democratic organization. But, um, <clears throat> I now can be completely open. So I've hung this other shingle, uh, I, you know, not literally, but figuratively, yeah. that I'm in. I, all my colleagues, I have a nephew who's drinking too much. Like, I, I get a lot of calls like that. But what's really powerful is now in my classes with 400, I got a text from a student a couple of days ago, going, happy 41 years. Like, you know, it's, I'm open about it. And so I'll tell you one story wow. about that is, I after I did this, I, Realize that talking about this is really useful because in a classroom of 400 students, you do the math, there's about 20 of them, 5% who are probably addicts. 5% right. is good, accurate, it's rough, right? Probably 20 of them are actively approaching that abyss or in it. Mm -hmm. And a good half of them have family members or problems. So I'm always very open about it. I say it's not part of the class. Right. When I talk about alcohol and nutrition, I do mention that, you know, this is a part of my story and... But I say, if any of you have any interest in talking about this or concerns or are worried or feel alone, come hit, and see me. Hit me up. Yeah. yeah. Can we hit, can can say, get hit me up? Yeah. And so I, I remember this one story. This actually, I think, perfectly encapsulates the utility of this. I put it this way. There are probably opportunities that I will not get or would not get now because of this, but they are very minor compared to the gain. So I'm sitting in my class. It's like January... 14th and i always take my clean day off i you know i said celebrate and i take my clean day off so i said uh, okay so my office hours are not going to be uh, on tuesday they're going to be the day after that because tomorrow's my clean day i have 37 years clean and sober i use the c and s because sure. that's what the public knows absolutely it as. i said I, i'm 37 years clean and sober and i saw and the class burst into applause like it was the most these are tomorrow's doctors nurses physicians, I mean, osteopathy people, physicians, assistants, whatever, you know, they are biomedical people who are moving into that world with a slightly different, a shifted view of what it means to be an addict. And yeah. I love that. And I've gotten emails. I got this one email. I mean, the problem is I get emails from students who go like, you know, I drink a lot. And right. so I always have coffee and say, why don't you try, try no high July. Tell them Rogan told you to do it. Right. All your friends will pile on if you say Rogan yeah, suggested yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And they'll all go like, oh, I don't know though. You know, they have all these excuses yet. I had a kid come to me, he goes, I often come to your class drunk. And it, it's a 10 a.m. class. 
Hmm. I said, you, <laughs> you need to look at that. Like, yeah, I'm right, not going to judge, right. but that sounds like you have a growing problem that yeah. you need to yeah. think about. So, but the, the, I also had a student last couple of years ago come and her mom was like, definitely one of us, like in and out of rehabs. And this poor young lady spoke the language of recovery. Like she had to learn it, you know, as a parent might for a kid. And mm-hmm. she was just always wrestling with her mom. So it's nice that she had someone to talk to about it, you know. And yeah. um, I so that's a space I'm now occupying. And then the other mission I'm on, and we all have our own missions, is um, and again for new people, don't don't try this at home. You know the, <laughs> you know the it's saying I I I got you know I'm I'm an addict. Yay! You know, be very circumspect about doing that. My situation is one that allows me to do that. And it's not one that is always the best idea. But um, the the mission I'm on now is trying to untangle spirituality from supernatural. You know, I think like one of the things that makes me not sad about our fellowship, but is challenging is that NA in particular is very cool with whatever higher power you want. Like really it's, you know, we have a story in the basic text in the sixth edition called Atheist Recover 2. Mm-hmm. Like that's official NA literature, meaning that's how big our escape vehicle is. That those there's a room or a car on that train for people like that. Like, come on aboard, yep. you know? So the trouble is that it takes years to figure that out. Like mm-hmm. the language is unfortunately a bit archaic and the flavor is such that it takes a very long time for people to understand that the biggest NA has, you know, NA asks for faith from us, you know, believe through action that we can change our thinking, but NA has a lot of faith in us. And the two issues of faith are that you decide to use or not. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't even have to be clean to come to a meeting. It's up to you. So that's one, the two biggest decisions that we face are, am I going to use today? What's my higher power, right? And those are both issues of faith that NA has in us, that you will figure it out. And so to me that you know the choice of a higher power is wildly open and free like i heard a great thing you know how a dog park is a place where all kinds of dogs are you guys have dogs mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm a cat person but anyway so you know in a dog park every possible dog's allowed and they all frolic and play and even people without a dog you know, what we are is a dogma park you know where every belief system is allowed freely to frolic with each other and you know grow from each other's experience independently of what that is and mm-hmm. that's sort of the mission i'm on is trying to figure out ways to make that clearer and easier because i think a lot of you know one of the things we know about our fellowship is you got to drugs work fast and recovery works slow yeah <laughs> you know you got to stick it out and you got to stay for a while until it starts sinking in. and then it work i mean we have people forced to come to meetings who who jump on board and get it like it's amazing how permeant it is despite the resistance people put up but boy i wish it were just easier you know there's that phrase in the older fellowship inches and seconds that we you know we um that the difference between someone who gets it and doesn't is a matter of inches and seconds i want that to be like feet and hours or you know miles and years i want it to be really a a lower barrier of entry and there's a lot of reasons for that and i think we are growing beautifully but I really want to make it easy for people who have trouble with the G word, not the gratitude, but the other G word, yeah. to understand how open a model that is and how free it is for each of us to, to do. The searching creates it, you know? So that's sort of where I'm at. I, I totally agree. 
I, I mean, I think that uh, people now, I mean, our, our our program is so it's so great to, to where you can you can have, you pick anything, pick anything yes. for a higher power. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, but I mean, yeah, that God word definitely scares people. I know. And, and it doesn't need to. But it's it's and I get it. I you know, I'm I'm not about changing the wording. And I think maybe even the uncomfortableness of the wording robs us of some of our sense of I've got this like. I think the most dangerous phrase in recovery is I've got this. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to not ever have it all figured out. And so, you know, I don't know for me, I, I had to get into a spot to where I was able to pray and, and yeah. really, really get down deep too, because, you know, I, I mean, now I'm going to church too. I mean, I'm doing all these different things, yeah. you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm just finding different outlets. Absolutely. And that's the part about growing in recovery. Yes. I mean, I think it's true. I mean, to me, what I think prayer is, because I, when I first got in, I, you know, and I think that thing if we act our way to a new way of thinking is the most powerful secret, if there is one, of what we do is we act our way to think differently. Is I prayed because back then I was like I'd do anything, you know, in that little meeting at yeah. the barefoot table. Right. Like I said, if someone told me to take a little piece of shit on a popsicle stick and eat it every day, I would do that, and that sort of stuck me. Like it's all about what you're suggested to do, hmm. and so I pray every morning. I said, please. And every evening I said, thank you. And mm -hmm. that has matured a bit into things. But what I realized for me, and this is for me, is prayer puts us in a mindset. It ritualizes asking the universe for help. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter who we are or aren't praying to. When we pray, we are creating a visceral, physical ritual of opening ourselves up to solutions that are outside ourselves. Like that to me is what it's about. I have this wonderful sponsee. He's a devout atheist. <laughs> I call him that. And he's a PhD in philosophy. So he, you cannot win an argument with a PhD in philosophy. It's like the only way to, to get him to do something is let him think he thought of an idea you floated. Right. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he has 37 years clean. So it has clearly worked for him. And uh, I remember he's a super smart cat. And he, uh, came to me one day and he goes i don't he had all these objections with the literature he goes, this is not clear and you know and he spends his time reading phenomenally dense kierkegaard and you know kant and i get like he knows all that shit mm -hmm. it's like i'm like i just know about molecules i'm a dummy and so <laughs> you know and and he said you know i don't like this and i said you need to use your powers for good like if you don't like what this says about higher power, write something that works for you because it will help other people. Mm. And that's he's done that. Like it's awesome. He's you know really figured out how to thread that natural secular needle of higher power. Mm. And it's church is fine too. Like I like that we are omnidirectional. Yeah. You know, it's really yeah. cool. I, I I I use my great grandmother. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Was she don't, a powerful figure in your yeah, life? Yeah, in my life. Yeah, it's just kind of hard. Like. I don't know. Aren't don't you gonna make a granny sound? Huh? Granny no, sound. I don't have no, one. Okay, no, okay. No, but like that's that's the for me that's my higher power. Sure. That's who I communicate with. That's who. Uh, that's what makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, like I don't know. That like, to me that's that's just where I'm at. Yeah, I've done my, that. I've done recovery. that too. It's just kind of like I don't know. Like when I don't know, just the way that I grew up. Yeah. Is way different, and like you know, like some people go to church and like i have nothing against like nope. people who find a way to get to a higher power if it's church and stuff like that yeah like, shoot more power to you yes you know? but like for me the thing that works for me is my uh you know great grandmother yeah that's it well what i love that we have is it is really like every single person brings a higher power to the mix that's different some mm -hmm. are more similar some are different 
And that makes our escape vehicle so big. Right. Like we couldn't have a high priest because they would have one higher power. We have a room full of high priests that each bring a different higher power. Right, right. Grandma, church, yeah, whatever it is. Nanotheology, whatever it I don't know, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. So as long as you have something to believe in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because I, I feel like it's if you don't like going into recovery without uh some form of belief is kinda hard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it was it was hard for me to like when I first got when I first started my journey, like it was hard for me to see a solution, you know, like because I couldn't physically see it, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I just couldn't physically see it. But then when you start seeing people come in to the program that have been clean, that, you know have some form of belief, whatever it is, you know, and seeing that they're changing, you know, that, that was to me, it was like, all right, cool. So maybe it might just work, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe if I do something, maybe something might just kick off, you know? So like, I just started using, uh, I started journaling, mm -hmm. right? So journaling started turning into like, uh, um, this is what I did today to, writing a letter to my grandmother right? you know what i'm saying okay, and, then see, it, yeah. and then it just gradually built to that and then i started developing using her as a higher yeah. power as like i jumped into uh the actual rooms and stuff yeah i mean yeah. what i love about what we do <coughs> is it's totally about growth and self-optimization like it is as modern and as powerful as any sort of wellness podcast like this you know it teaches us to examine self and figure out ways we can become more skillful participants in the human experience. Like, I love that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I now tell a lot of people who have trouble with the Because everyone comes in here to avoid consequences. That is mm. almost a universal. Exactly. Very few, nobody comes into the rooms to make their life a little bit better. Although it would. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. But, you know, years after, you know, the drugs have gone away. And I still have a using dream now and then. Like, every six months... I get a reminder from my deep limbic system that I'm in the right place because <laughs> I will mm -hmm. have a dream that is so vivid. Of course, my sponsors in it because any ruins you're using dreams as well as you're using. I, my yeah. sponsor always appears in my using dreams. So like, Not oh, today, oh, Rainy. Yeah, I'm trouble. <laughs> or, do you want to try some too? No, you know, or somehow it's like <laughs> NA-ish. I remember once we were looking at a chart, figuring out how many years I'd have to take off my clean time to use this drug with some sort of chart. I don't know. Is right. that, That's crazy. But, but the point is I would wake up and be absolutely convinced I had used. I mean, we're yeah. talking less than a year ago. Like, holy shit. Because it's up. so deep. Like, it's a different place. But along with that, you know, it's like the steps are this incredibly powerful. Like, I heard a great thing that, that recovery is either easier done than said. <laughs> you know, like the doing of it is more straightforward than talking about it and trying to explain it. But for me now, and this might change, you know, another 10 years, I don't know. But the steps really are, if you look at the actions, they're all about examining self, figuring out how we used to treat ourselves and other people, how we could do that better, and how we can carry that into our life in and out of the rooms. You know, how to be a skillful participant in the human experience. Like, mm. it's about, I mean, I've never made a four-step to a table. You know, it's about people, and it's about our interaction with others, and you know, the good news is it now is boiled down to just saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. Like my my ninth step fodder <laughs> is a lot, a lot less horrible than, you know, having to wait till the statute of limitations and to go make ninth right. step amends, which I mm -hmm. did. 
you know, so I love that it's so growth oriented. Like I, like I love sitting in the rooms and somebody, you know, they don't even need a lot of time. We'll start going about, you know, I did this thing and it was really bad. And they're basically self-examining. Mm -hmm. They're like tabulating the things they did that could be better. Like who that, who does that? Like that is an incredible honor to sit in a room and see that going on. It's like, it's amazing, you know, yeah. and, and there are people who stay clean because it makes their life better. Like there are billions of people on the planet who've decided not to drink or use because it improves their life. So we have that element too, you know, I love all of it. So it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's, it's all about growth. I can tell you right now, two hours in this fucking podcast fucking rips. Yeah. I I'm was telling, like, I'm telling I'm you. Like, what? I'm telling you guys. I'm telling you guys right now. This yeah. is hands down one of my best, my favorite podcast we were yeah. done. I think I was way I, too verbal. I love it. No, no, I, I like love it. it. Hey, you know what? This is this is what I was thinking the entire time. I'm like, people, people will sit if they're driving, whatever. Say people are going out of state and mm -hmm. they, they they can't get to a meeting. Put this episode on. Episode fucking LFG nineteen oh four show episode eighty nine with Randy. Uh -huh. I'm gonna fucking name it <laughs> Professor Randy, motherfuckers. Yeah, but I'm but I'm saying though is man, just for us, it, it, how we're elevating though too. We just had Spike on last I week, know. I you love know, Spike. And, and now having you on, man, we're just so blessed to have gifts like you got guys in recovery that we can still have conversations with, man. Because what a blessing this has been, man. This has been a great show. Um, I thank you so much, Randy, oh, for coming on, man. Huge pleasure. I, and I wanted to meet both of you because I've listened yeah. to you on the podcast so many yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Hands, oh, yeah. hands down, you're the smartest guy we ever had. So the two degenerates over here, I'm like, God damn, he's, no, no, he no, teaches no. PA, you know, doctors and shit. Here he is in the fucking shop with LFG boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, my man, yeah. dude, you wouldn't like, no. honestly, honestly, I've heard you speak a couple times in, in yeah. meetings and like, hearing your story right now, you literally had me like, holy fuck, well, make the Randy. Sound. Make one of the sounds. I thought I was, I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, man, yeah. Like, th like throughout the entire time you were talking, I was like, holy fuck, and like you're rooting, you're rooting, you're like, come on, Randy, yeah. you could do this yeah, shit, yeah, you could yeah. do this it's shit. Nip and you know, gross. like, because yeah. it's, it's, it's really like, it's really, man, I, don't, I have no words for it, man. Like, it's just an honor to see you, oh. you know, still going hard, yeah. still, you know, doing the deal, doing what's right for you, what feels good to oh, you, you, you know? Like, and, like, knowing that you're in the field that you want to be in. Uh, and, and like it's all gifts of recovery. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. You know? It's crazy because, like, a lot of your story is, like, um, I could relate, you know? Like, when, uh, when I got – when I was uh, – I caught my DUI and I wound up going into the program and everything like that. I took a leave of absence from the print shop where mm -hmm. I was working at and I left the print shop and I came back when I hit job search. And when I went in there, I just like sat down and I looked at it and I was just like, man, the only thing that changed is like, I'm not getting high right now, I know, I but know. I'm just doing the same fucking shit. And like, I was like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta try something new. You know, and I jumped into like cooking. I found a passion for cooking. Yeah. And then uh now I'm back at the print shop and it's like, you know, I'm just doing doing the deed. I, yeah. I, I'm actually doing better than what I was doing when I was like when I was like in my addiction. Yeah, because now no I'm shock. more 
now I'm like more fine tuned. I'm I'm more and focused. Energy and focus, like yeah. Yeah. I love that phrase in the book: "Is old possibilities, old dreams awaken and new possibilities arise." That yeah. is some deep shit. Yeah, because like now, like so, now we're what they're u- they used to use me to do the printing, and like now they're using me to do more of the QC work, uh-huh. like looking at the print and being like, "Hey, this is off of registration. Right? Yeah, like yeah, this yeah. isn't done right." Like. You added way too much water to this, and because like when it comes down to printing, it's like you know yeah. water and and ink, and it's like mm, you, you spelled know. LFG wrong. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, uh, yeah. you know. So like, I I think like a lot of your stories like really inspirational Good. to people. Like I'm, it's I'm it's glad. definitely it's yeah. definitely a rad story, um, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people could relate. Good. You know, you're not the only Randy out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, I got a guy who texted me because he read my story and asked World Services if he could find out who it was. They wrote me. I said, sure, I have no problem with you telling. And he wrote me this long text. He was a grad student in a pharmacology lab. Wow. Who was using, got kicked out. I mean, it was exact. And he said that my story, because it's so similar, I mean, they're not (laughs) allowed to. Uh, you know, allowed him to feel like he belonged. So that was wow. worth writing it right there. So, and I'm sure there's way more too of that. Yeah. I mean, or just academic types yeah. who feel like you, the, the most dangerous thing to say is those people. Like that mm. is like, that is the addict in you speaking loudly to keep you, you mean from going those to people, not just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. no, yeah, no, that's like terrible. Like that that's, is, I've had, you know, you get young people are like that and you just have to say, they know something you don't know that right. you desperately <laughs> need to know. And yeah. and then the truth is that we all are these wise creatures. Like I love that each meeting is distributed wisdom. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a group creates a single guru that's made of a whole part set of parts. It's powerful. For sure. I love it. All right. Good shit. <sighs> well, guys, I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah, banging out show, motherfuckers. <laughs> Oh, man. We're going to fucking... This is Randy's fucking get down right here. The banjo and bluegrass, motherfucker. So get with it. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, guys. I dig it. I'm a fucking country bumpkin anyway, so... I love it. Now, I'll hop on that green...